So, Steve, the question that I want to know about is, whenever all these college kids and stuff go out to their favorite trendy bars to do like a night of drinking and stuff like that, uh huh, do they order all those stupid, horseshit, ridiculous shots that we used to get back in the day when we were in school? <laughs> um, such as? I mean, like, do you think that any of these college kids are going into a bar and being like, Give me the four horsemen, dude. <laughs> What's a four horseman? Oh, it's just like deliberately awful. It's like fucking, I've actually seen a lot of different versions of it, but the idea is it's like, you know, 151 plus Jaeger oh. plus oh. whatever other high proof things you can toss at it. Oh. Or do you think that they're going in there and ordering those like ridiculous layered shots that just drive bartenders oh, and stuff insane? Fuck. Are they going in there and ordering DM sex with an us. alligator or anything like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, I... RDM would probably know. I, you know, I haven't been to a bar in a while, but I don't, I don't remember seeing anybody with anything like that. Though, the only places I ever go for a cocktail really are postmodern. Yeah. Uh, and they don't fuck around. I mean, maybe we should just like go to some of these really awesome trendy bars and walk in and be like, hey, uh, I'd like a blowjob and a liquid cocaine. <laughs> just watch <laughs> just the bartender's reactions and they're out. like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> Welcome, dead and lovely listeners, to the brand newest installment of your favorite horror movie podcast in this multiverse and the next. Why it's dead and lovely here with your favorite drinking buddies. Why it's me, Uncle Ben. Me, Hollywood Steve. And we're here to do a deep dive chat about old American Psycho from the year 2000. The future. <laughs> but before we do that, we're going to catch up, shoot the shit, talk about some stuff we've been watching, all that jazz. If it's your first time listening and you just want to get right to the movie, you can always look in the uh, podcast description there and find right out where the movie there. chat starts. Time you code. can find it. Just look for it. You'll find it. Mm -hmm. How you been doing, Steve? I've been doing all right. I'm getting good grades. Future's so bright. Ooh, wow. I gotta wear shade. Ah, oh, that's great news. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> so good. This is going to be a very music-filled episode. Yes, I can it is. Very tell. 80s music-filled Yeah, episode. the best music. Yeah. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we we just recorded recently, uh, so not much has happened in the, the few days since we recorded. No, mm -hmm. but but my it, it's been good. Been rocking out. Yeah, man. You watch anything cool? Uh, I watched the Hulu has their Into the Dark series, and I actually haven't watched any of those movies yet. But basically, they that release is. a horror movie every month. Um, oh shit! I didn't know that. That is themed to a holiday within the month, and this one was National Pet Day. It's called Good Boy. It's got Judy Greer in it, and it was funny. Really? I didn't know that this was like a thing that they were doing. How long has this been going on? I about, uh, it started last year. Damn, and, uh, dude. It's Blumhouse. Uh, they they do all the movies. So oh, okay. Yeah. That sounds like a very Blumhouse kind of move. Yeah, it does. <laughs> right on. So, yeah, they're making these low-budget quality horror movies. I enjoyed it. I mean, it, it's not, like, amazing, but it, it was fun. Is it about a dog? It's about a dog. And okay. um, we have been talking recently, because it just keeps happening in the movies we're doing, about horror movies using uh, killing the, the dog as just a way to introduce, you know, death into the, the movie. Mm -hmm. Or uh, make you hate a character. Good, good boy is, 
definitely gonna be uh, fun for you if you you don't like that. Okay, right on. Yeah. Sounds like it's worth a watch. Yeah, I, I like I like what they did with it. It was funny, and Judy Greer is always great. Killer man. Yeah, I also haven't been watching a whole lot since last time we recorded there. I mean, I watched American Psycho last night. And then the uh-huh. night before that, we watched the Andre the Giant documentary that came out on oh, HBO man. like last year. I have not seen this. Dude, you have to watch it. You have yeah. to fucking watch it. It is so good. It'll also it'll get them allergies working up, man. It's, oh, yeah? Yeah, it's either that Start or maybe... some onions? Maybe somebody started cutting some onions up yeah. out there. I don't know because yeah. I, got, I got some perspiration coming out of my eyes. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. perspiration. That's fucking sweat. <laughs> yeah, you're sweating out of your I'm eyes. Sweating from Jesus. the eyeballs. Oh, it would just sting too. Oh, precipitation was the word I was going for there. Sure, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it's really good, and it's got like all kinds of like interviews with you know Hogan and Mean Gene Okerlund oh, and cool. Ric Flair. Like so many people talking yeah. about their experiences with Andre, and they they cover some of the, like the really good fun like yeah you know mythos that's around andre about him do they you know. talk about his legendary fart yep there's a lot of fart talk oh, in there gosh I, just I, apparently i'll just tell the loved. the story real quick in Please. case you don't know it um on the set of princess bride <laughs> apparently one time andre the giant let out a fart that lasted for almost a full minute <laughs> and <laughs> afterwards who's who directed that fuck who directed rob reiner Rob Reiner, yeah. Meathead. After after the fart, Rob Reiner was like, you okay? <laughs> and Andre the Giant was like, I am now, boss. <laughs> he called and, everybody boss. That's something yeah. I get the impression of through this whole thing. Yeah. It's like, every time somebody does an Andre impression, boss is at the boss end of like every yeah. sentence, you know? Yeah, I, I, I remember hearing that story, and I immediately was like, yeah, Andre the Giant is awesome. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's an amazing response. It's great. I mean, like I said, they deal with stuff like that. They talk about his, you know, prodigious drinking skills. Yeah, he drank. He could drink so much alcohol. Oh my god! I mean, we're talking like a case of wine. Like he would order yeah. a case of wine and have that you, to start the day or whatever. I mean, the thing is, you you could see picture. Just look up a picture of of Honor the Giant with a beer can. You can see that the beer can is like dwarfed by his hand. That's one of my favorite pictures. I mean, it looks yeah. like he's holding like one of those like tiny bar cans yeah. that you get. Yeah. That's <laughs> what a full size can looks like in his hand. So, yeah. yeah, when you hear stories about him drinking like 140 beers or whatever, like, I believe it. <laughs> yeah, because those are essentially like beer shots. <laughs> yeah, to him. <laughs> but, you know, it also gets real and it gets sad and stuff. And it's just like, yeah. you know, especially back then. Oh, yeah, all the time. And then, too, yeah. you know, especially back then, it's like, Everything was made for regular sized people yep. everywhere you go. It's like it's like yeah. living your entire life sitting on like doll furniture, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's great, man. You should totally watch it. I know that you'd really appreciate it, but you know, Kate Kate yeah. watched it yeah, too. She, it she's not into wrestling like at all. Yeah. And uh she was just as captivated as I. So yeah, I think give that a thing lot, a watch. Yeah, I think with documentaries, a uh, successful documentary does not have to be about a subject you're already interested in mm-hmm. like a well-done documentary doesn't matter what the the subject is you're by the end of it you're interested in it yeah if it's well made you're in yeah. right yeah and it definitely is very well made so 
I think you should watch it. Hell yeah, I'll check it out. All right, Steve, the subject of our show today is, of course, American Psycho, and this was a Patreon pick suggested by one of our loyal and lovely patrons. Yep. Steve, Justin if people, if people are listening to this and they're like, wait, how do I get to pick a movie? How do you think they should do that? Well, um, you're going to want to open a web browser. A web browser. On your device. Okay. Now, in the web browser, you're going to want to uh, add HTTP. Mm, okay. Yes. Colon. Backslash. Backslash. www. Now that stands for World Wide Web. World. Okay. World Wide right. Web. Got it. Got right. it. Right. Dot. Patreon. Dot com. Forward slash. Dead and lovely. Those backslashes I said earlier, you're going to want to fix those to front Uh-oh. slashes unless you're trying to get into your C drive. What's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> now, Steve, do I do this before or after I dial up the modem? Oh, right. Yeah, you're going to have to do that. Oh, okay. man. I'm going to dial up first. Welcome. Then enter that into my web browser. You've got mail. <laughs> then I type in the HTTP. Yeah. But head on over there. Become a $5 patron, and you can help decide which movies we cover. Not only do we randomly pick one for the, uh, once a month, but we also uh, go to the the suggestions very often when we're mm-hmm. looking for movies to cover. So go become a five dollar patron. Decide what movies we uh, review. Uh, review. That's uh, <laughs> uh, review. Yeah, what movies we uh, review is our um, <laughs> is our tagline, right? Oh yeah. shit! <laughs> Fuck! What is happening? <laughs> Suddenly. After 167 episodes, I got stage fright. <laughs> what? Are people listening right now? Ooh. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't talk. <laughs> but yeah, head on over to the Patreon page. Show, the, uh, show some support for the show, and you can help drive the car. Yeah. And this is such a fucking awesome movie. It had been yeah. so long I since it. I saw it that I was actually kind of nervous to watch it again and see if yeah, the, uh, if the glimmer... Had yeah. faded, yeah, exactly. But if anything, it's uh, it's it's way it's more relevant now. now. <laughs> yeah, it's even better now. And of course, one of the the things that I think everybody takes from this movie after they watch it for the first time is the absolutely '80s poptastic soundtrack yes. that is propelled by Patrick it. Bateman's musical taste. It is chock a block mm-hmm. with, I mean, fucking Phil Collins. With yeah. Houston, uh, Simply Irresistible, so Robert Palmer on there. Uh-huh. Holy moly. I mean, to the extent that I, I believe it was the biggest expense for the film, right? was just the soundtrack rights. Yeah. Yeah. A $7 million budget and the biggest expense was uh, the rights to the song. <laughs> I believe it, too, because they are solid gold 80s yeah. hits. So, Steve, I say before we get into the movie review ski proper, how about we just take a little pit stop here at the old preview palace? Preview Palace. (laughs) This is Preview Palace. (laughs) (laughs) And Steve, I'd like to just take a second here and ask you about your favorite hits from the 80s. Maybe if you could Mm -hmm. wrangle up about 10 of them, what would you put on a list like that? About a billion of them. Oh, dude, I'm telling you, this was like the hardest list I've ever had to make. I was seriously like fucking wringing my hands and stressing. Uh I got the vapors. The vapors, yeah, that makes sense. Pull out the spelling salts. Mm-hmm. You'll be all right. I had to be, I had to be revived. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, probably had to loosen your corset a bit. I did. It is uh-huh. thankfully made of a very flexible whale bone, 
So it it relaxed as soon as I loosened the strings. Very flexible whalebone. <laughs> Dude, because seriously, like, there's so much fucking great music to choose from. It was yes, so hard is. to narrow it down to just 10 because I'm telling you, dude, it's like they spent a solid decade writing 80s music. That's they I did. Mean, that's that's going to lead to them getting pretty good at it. Yeah, yeah. After a solid decade. And this is actually something I noticed because we talked about this with Scream, that 1997 was the most 90s year. I think 1987 is around the time we start leaving behind the 80s sound. So mm-hmm. this is like the 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 highest it got right before becoming the 90s and getting, you know, way more hip hop. That was awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also grunge and whatnot. But man, I like I listen to a lot of this music regularly. Totally. Me too. <laughs> And you know the funny thing about '80s music is, is when I was a kid, I didn't like it. Like when oh, I was really? a kid, yeah. When I was a kid, my mom would play, you know, the the new hits radio station and shit right. like that, and play, you know, stuff like Phil Collins and all that. Uh huh. I actually really didn't get into it. I didn't like it at all. Oh man, I know it makes no sense. Like I love classic rock, like '70s stuff yeah. when I was a kid, uh-huh. and classical, but uh, I didn't get into any of the stuff back then. But now it's like kind of all that i want to listen to <laughs> yeah now all right i like the the song i would say from the 80s i listen to most regularly and i don't know why is walk like an egyptian oh is that some bangles action yeah and i i mean i think a lot of it has to do with the, how adorable Susanna hoffs is and i always watch the video on youtube yep but it's just a fucking awesome song. Oh, it's great. It's that's so that's totally one silly. I remember hearing all the time as a yeah. kid. And like seeing, yeah, the music video and stuff. The video is insane. It's ridiculous. The video is insane. Yes, but it is. I, I don't know. It's just so very 80s that I, I think just watching it is enough nostalgia. Yeah, no doubt, man. No doubt. That's a great choice right there. So with with myself, I tried to keep this out of the realm of like hair metal. I tried to keep yeah, it in the realm of like 80s pop hits yeah, and stuff. Yeah, stuff you would have heard on a regular old radio station. Exactly. But every now yeah. and then we did have kind of a crossover that sort of treaded the line in between That's those true. two, such as Jump by Van Halen. Jump! Yeah, dude. Might as well Jump! Yeah. I mean, good yeah. God. You got giant synthesizers. You got Eddie's ripping ass guitar solo. Yeah, it's awesome. Yep. The last record with David Lee Roth on vocals from the original line of records. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness gracious. And what that, else do you that want? That was on a lot of movies. Oh, God, it was. Yeah. You also <laughs> yeah. got David Lee Roth riding a giant inflatable microphone like a stallion in the video, doing spin kicks. <laughs> I think he has a sword in the video, too. Come Obviously. on. It Duh. doesn't get better than that. <laughs> yeah um well speaking of of jumping uh, number nine this is in no way related to that okay <laughs> tears Good for segue. fears everybody wants to rule the world holy shit that's on my list too dude seriously yeah oh, okay i mean so good tears for fears awesome just great absolutely shout. okay how, how about this you can have everybody wants to rule the world shout that was I a call great it one. a deal. I call it a deal. Dude. All of that stuff, man. Tears for Fears, Depeche Mode, Duran Duran. Uh huh. Oh yeah. It's oh, impossible to choose. <laughs> it's impossible to it choose really like is. how to get all that stuff in a top ten because it's all so fucking good. 
Everybody really Wants is. to Rule the World is one of my favorites, though. There's actually a lot of really complex and ambiguous things going on with the rhythm of that song, which is really cool. There's also a lot of really dope covers of that tune, too. Like my friend Mark Letary that plays guitar for Snarky Puppy on his solo album Spark and Echo, the last track on it is a cover of this song, and it is so fucking dope. He's got like That's awesome. a guy playing steel guitar. It might be him playing steel. I don't know. Playing like the melodies and stuff. Uh-huh. God, it's so good, man. That's I dope. love that song. I... I have some questions, because as as someone who knows nothing about music really at all, uh, I know that a lot of people hate this music, and that a lot of people doubt the levels of musicianship in a lot of the '80s pop. Mm-hmm. What is that? I mean, is it is it the fact that synthesizers are easier than guitars? It like was it just some sort of like was it like Maybe that they were using elements of disco that people hated about it? So that's a good question right there. Yeah, because basically a lot of this music, as a result of the time period that it was recorded in, it's obviously very dated sounding. I mean, when you hear something that came out in the 80s, you're like, oh, it sounds like it came out in the 80s. Everything sounds a lot more synthesized and polished Uh and maybe artificial or plasticky than the classic rock era. And you are correct in a lot of ways in that a lot of that stuff did start coming about during the disco era. Um, uh-huh. Actually, in fact, the the way that pretty much all modern music for the past, well, I say modern, I really mean since the 80s, really, yeah. or even late 70s, pretty much all music is recorded to a metronome these days, you know, to a perfect uh-huh. click. We, we right. call it aligning stuff to the grid to where everything will be metrically perfect. And yeah. back in the days of classic rock, they just had a drummer record and then everybody would record on top of him. Everybody played to the drummer. Maybe he is, you know, slowing down in the choruses. Maybe he's pushing forward in the verses, whatever. Uh-huh. But whenever we reached the disco era and we started adapting a lot more synthesizers and stuff like that into our music, there's a there's a feature on a lot of those early synthesizers called like arpeggiation. And basically, it's just like you can just hold down one key and the keyboard will do those crazy like arpeggios, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And because it is a synthesizer doing it, it's metrically perfect. So basically, if you had John Bonham from Led Zeppelin playing drums and he's pushing and pulling the tempo up and down, you can't be using one of those synthesizers because the synthesizer is metronomically perfect. Okay. So during the disco era... When they started using those synths and stuff a lot in a lot of that music, it kind of demanded that the the drummer record to a click track, because otherwise he would drift away from it by you know the chorus or whatever. Huh. So to some people that means that there's a lot of humanity that got lost. Right. Um, whenever okay. we started recording to a click, so I think that that is part of it. But I mean, obviously, even outside of like the guitar, uh, you know, which the guitar was like the the primary shred force of the 80s and in all of rock and heavy metal and stuff yeah i I think everybody knows like 80s guitar players are hot shit but there's so many artists on these songs that played on these 80s hits that are incredible drummers and bass players and backup singers and you gotta think dude there was no fucking auto-tune or anything back then right yeah i mean like obviously uh (laughs) phil collins knows what he's doing yeah he's playing some drums and he he is able to uh, use a unique voice oh, to yeah. provide something more than just a boring 
white dude singing songs about white people problems like <laughs> i mean but that is mostly what 80s pop is boring white people singing white people problem songs but <laughs> it still sounds great like i i really like i actually really do like the artificial sound to it totally like, man. i like that off-putting perfection to it for some yep. reason it, it really works for me well that all kind of goes back to that that thing that we've talked about in art and in music and in film and everything else where whenever there's a new advent of technology the things that we were perceiving as its flaws back then become its primary characteristics given enough time i mean the fact hmm. that like mm -hmm. you know pixel art is a thing the fact that right. so many 2d games now are coming out and they're intentionally pixely and blocky right that used to be a limitation of the technology a flaw but, yeah, now, but now it's a choice yeah exactly it's a yeah. trademark now give it 20 or 30 years and now it's a trademark you know right uh, i'd say that people will be saying the same thing about you know hearing auto-tune and pitch correct on stuff now like nowadays i listen to it and i'm like fuck this it sounds like shit it doesn't sound uh -huh. like anybody's singing in tune it sounds like a keyboard singing <laughs> it does but then 20 or 30 years from now people will be doing that to get this era sound on purpose again the limitation will become the appeal yeah that's cool i and even kind of some of those you know ultra musicians that i'm talking about appear on my next entry on my list because it's is? motherfucking rosanna by toto <laughs> awesome Fuck i was gonna put yeah. africa on my list but i didn't uh, that's the thing right is like i mean obviously africa iconic as fuck but it's also yeah. just been driven into the fucking ground yeah. over the past few years man the final nail yeah. in the coffin was that god awful weezer cover fuck that yeah. was horrible mm -hmm. uh, but rosanna by toto is absolutely incredible jeff picaro's drum groove in that amazing um the the guitar solo in there by steve lukather phenomenal the keyboard solo amazing uh Toto, a lot of people don't know, was a band that was formed by a bunch of studio rats that played on everybody's records in the 70s and up into the early 80s. They worked on all these sessions together playing for huge pop stars. And, you know, they were Boz Skaggs' oh. band. Toto was I did not Boz Skaggs' band. Yeah. And so they eventually just hit a point where they're like, let's write our own fucking songs. Which makes oh. sense. If you've ever seen yeah. Toto, they're just a bunch of like fugly studio looking guys you know right <laughs> they yeah, don't look like pop stars star looking dudes no yeah. <laughs> uh-uh so those guys are all incredible players that managed to transition into the 80s from this you know studio lifestyle that they started in the late 70s amazing players that's awesome yeah dude uh, the toto's africa i always associate with my next one on my list men at work down under <laughs> i come I from a land down under love that song <laughs> so much i name I, another song that mentions a vegemite sandwich yeah that's my favorite bit he just smiled and gave me a vegemite sandwich it's like <laughs> i don't know it's it's simplicity um and how like how it is really just trying to cash in on people's interest in australia at the time uh-huh yeah, but it's <laughs> it's still good. It's still fun. It's got I a like hot it. jazz flute part in it, it too. It does. It does. Well, <laughs> <laughs> jazz flute. That is something I've noticed, too, in going through a lot of these and, and all the stuff in American Psycho is a lot of, a lot of like, different instruments that you don't, um, you don't pick out as much anymore in songs. Like, they still do get used, but 
Like the saxophone had a big heyday in the eighties. Oh my god, careless whisper and all that stuff. Come uh-huh. on. A little saxahorn yeah. in there. Yeah. So I mean that's why shirtless sax guy was in the Lost Boys, because the sax was sexy. Sexy sax. Hey, I'll tell uh-huh. you what, the next one on my list has got a sexy sax solo in it. Uh oh, what it is. I can't go for that. Buy some good old haul and motherfucking oats. All and oats. God damn it, dude. Like if you yeah. if you're not aware of how many incredible eighties pop hits Hall and Oates wrote, you might be a redneck. Yeah. You might be. You might be redneck. Damn old redneck. Oh, PS, just side Jeff Jeff Foxworthy note. <laughs> okay. A couple weeks ago, I did see the saddest thing that has happened as a result of the COVID nineteen oh, no. quarantine lockdown change of lifestyle that we're that we're under, you know, right now. What is it? I drove by a Shoney's <laughs> and they were advertising that you can get buffet to go. The idea of taking Shoney's home to eat Ugh. is actually the saddest thing I've that ever thought of. Horrendously sad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can you think of anything that would be more depressing than that? Go to Shoney's, grab mm. a to-go box, and load mm-hmm. it up. Then you take it home. Oh, gosh. Here you go, kids. Here's some uh, cantaloupe that tastes like nothing. And <laughs> here's some just box pancakes that I could have made, but instead I wanted to pay for them. No idea why. <laughs> Sorry, I don't love you more. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. I'm not really. I'm just saying that because I think it'll help. <laughs> there's really any number of Hall and Oates songs that I could have chosen, but there's something about I Can't Go For That. It's got that just steady, mid-tempo groove, yeah. a groovin'-ass bass line, dope chord changes. Holy cow. Hall and Oates songs have crazy complicated chord changes in a lot of them that people don't oh, yeah? oh, that people don't realize. Even songs like Maneater have all kinds of crazy key Ooh. changes and stuff. And it's because, like, Daryl Hall and John Oates were huge Motown fans. Like, that's their shit okay. is Motown. And, of course, a lot of those songs are very complex harmonically and totally appealing from a pop sense, too. So, yeah, yeah I had to put some Hall and Oates on here, man. They're the sound of the fucking 80s pop. Uh, I didn't even pick a song here. I'm just going to say The Cars. <laughs> there you go. Fuck yeah, yeah. man. Like uh. The Cars throughout the 80s. That's the stuff I remember being on the radio a lot. Yep. I remember I The Cars it. and Jefferson Starship were on the radio a <laughs> Ooh. lot. Ooh. Yeah. I like The Cars we a lot better. City. <laughs> yeah, that's terrible. But so The bad. Cars... I mean, I, my best friend's girl is amazing. So what good. Uh, just, I mean, we we lost Rick Ocasek a couple of years ago, right? But, See you at the crossroads. Man, he was so that that was just such wonderfully put together music. Oh yeah, and dude. I I don't know if there's ever been a band that um, nailed perfectly like the the feel of the cars. Mm-mm. Except maybe Weezer on their first couple albums. Of course, because Rick Ocasek produced <clears throat> Rick Ocasek. the Blue album. Yeah, exactly. You know? So it's like, that's yeah. why. And it's funny, yeah. too, because I was into you know Weezer way before I got into the Cars. And then oh, whenever yeah. I started listening to the Cars and I heard those like really just straight, super nerdy songs like Shake It Up. Like That's what I love yeah. about Shake It Up. Ooh, it sounds like a ooh. bunch of fucking nerds writing something that they think is cool. And it's got that cheesy-ass, like, synthesizer (laughs) and stuff. 
Oh, yeah. And then you hear the Blue Album, and you're like, yeah, that sounds exactly like that. Uh-huh. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, it was that nerdy bit to it that really always stuck with me. Oh, Just yeah. How, I mean, the car stood out as particularly weird for mm-hmm. being on the radio back in, in the 80s. Yeah, no kidding, man. No kidding. And some yeah. great guitar playing by Elliot Easton. He had a lot of like cool yeah. rockabilly-inspired stuff, even in like My Best Friend's Girl. It's got a great solo yeah. in that. That's a great choice right there, man. Yeah, you know, my you next got? one my next one here is a little off the beaten path, but it's just one of my favorite songs and I listen to it probably every week at least once. <laughs> Do you know the song okay. In My House by the Mary Jane Girls? No. It's not really like a huge tune, but I'm obsessed with it and I listen to it constantly. Down. Yeah, it's like they're like a girl group. I guess they had like three chicks, I guess, singing in the band. And it's just got this like mid-tempo groove. Like you know how you know how a lot of songs like they have those high points and low points, and they carry through it, and it's like a ride or whatever. Yeah. But then every now and then there's a song that just kind of stays at the whole level the entire song, but somehow it's just completely entrancing. Yeah. This is one of those songs. Great vocals, great chord progressions, and production. I'm obsessed with it. Give that one a listen. Lionel Richie's all night long. Oh shit, Lionel! I don't have any Lionel on my list, dude. <laughs> oh wow! Wow, we'll also mention Hello, uh, oh. as well as just everything Lionel Richie did in the '80s was awesome. But All Night Long is one that I I sing probably once a week. Like dude. it just comes to my head, and I'm just singing it the whole day. Can you imagine what kind of cold-blooded killer would listen to All Night Long and not have a good time? <laughs> Yes, I can. It would be Patrick Bateman. Yeah, but exactly. You have to be I a cold-blooded killer. I think he could probably killer. muster up a good time for that I'm pretty song. sure that he could. Oh, dude, that's such a great yeah. Cool chord progressions in that song, too. Great rhythm section. That's a good choice, man. Okay, oh, I got man. I got one on here that, I mean, it's impossible to narrow it down to the best song by this artist, but it's undeniable that he was such a gigantic force in the 80s. I'm talking about that motherfucker Prince. Yes, yeah. I um I didn't put a Prince song down because I was gonna defer to you as to what you think the best Prince song is. Because you knew 80s. you knew I'd have one on here, right? Yeah. <laughs> I was. I mean, I I was writing some down, and then I was like, man, I've already got like 30 songs. <laughs> well, you know, well, I've got Pete's a lot of have favorite a Prince song. Yeah, I've got a lot of favorite Prince tunes, but the one that I listen to like on repeat all the time is a little tune off of Purple Rain called Baby, I'm a Star. You know that tune? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I know the whole Purple Rain album, yeah. Oh, dude. And really, I mean, I could have put Darling Nikki. I could have put Computer Uh, Blue. Obviously, Purple Rain. So many fucking awesome songs. But Baby, I'm a Star, there's something about it that it just makes me have a great time. It makes me super happy to (laughs) listen to that song. So I listen to that one on repeat all the time. Also, it was basically recorded live. Same with the song Purple Rain. A lot of people don't know this. The cut of Purple Rain that you hear on the album. Yeah. That's the first song that, the first time that song was ever played live. That's live. Yeah. (sighs) I think Prince might've been talented. You know, I'm going to look into it. All right, gonna look yeah, into check it. it out. Maybe, maybe ke- check a couple of his other albums. He may, he may have been extremely talented. I think he wrote a couple of people's songs as well. That's right. I might even have <laughs> one of them creeping up on this list. You're gonna find out about that. Hell soon. yeah. What do you got? Uh, well, you mentioned Duran Duran earlier. Hungry like the wolf. Ah, 
irresistible. So <laughs> fucking good, like man. The woo. Yeah, that's. I mean, Duran Duran in general, uh, a bunch of great songs. Oh, but Rio, I really like dude. Ah, I love Rio. Yeah, that's a great one. So yeah, many good but, tunes. Yeah, no doubt, man. Yeah, those are all very solid choices so far. Uh, we're kind of getting up to the top of the list here, and I'm going to try to to put some on you here that are heavy hitters. Of course, the 80s, when you think about the pop scene and stuff, you're thinking about all these happy people and all these fun songs and people that are like, yeah, we got all this money in our pockets and we're all on cocaine and got tight, tight bodies. Yeah. But it wasn't just fun, wacky, good times for everybody. Some people in the 80s were sad and dark and oh, emotional. Yeah? And they were writing songs like Love Song by The Cure. <laughs> Oh, Bob Smith. Oh, Bob Smith, isn't he? Oh, Bob Smith's down in the doldrums. <laughs> He's a bit down in the doldrums, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, The Cure's awesome. Fuck yeah. There's any number of incredible Cure songs I could have put. Yeah, Fascination that's... Street, Pictures of You, Six Different sure. Ways. I mean, uh-huh. good God. But Love Song is just so timeless. Love There's song. also been a lot of great covers of it. The 311 cover is actually pretty sick. I have not heard that. Dude, I gotta check cool. that out. It's okay. good, man. So yeah, All I gotta right. put some cure on my list. Um, this one is just one of my my favorite bands of all time, and the video is gonna blow your mind if you've Uh-oh. never seen it before. We're talking about Dire Straits, "Money for Nothing." Oh, and your chicks for free, huh? That's right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> if that's what, if you're paying for your money. And your chicks, you are a loser, according to the Dire Straits. <laughs> that, Dude, that song uh, is awesome. Absolutely awesome. Mart- yeah. Martin Offler is one of the best guitar players of all time. And I'll tell you this, too. I've never heard anybody, myself included, play that opening riff and make it sound right. There's some kind of magic going on there that I don't comprehend. So good. That yeah, that's, that's a great choice right there, man. You know, we're getting up into our top three right here. Yeah, we this are. is where the stakes are getting high. And I'll tell you, I had a few noteworthy uh, ones that I wanted to put on my list that just barely didn't make it. I just want to mention them real quick before I get into my top three. Okay. One Thing Leads to Another by The Fix. I fucking okay. love that Great song, one. man. Uh-huh. And then my love of it was driven home even more when it appeared in The House of the Devil. Yeah. So good, man. Um, awesome. Reach by Martini Ranch. Okay. Which is is one a lot of people probably don't know. Yes, that's right. It's Bill Paxton (laughs) and members of the B 52s. Yeah. (laughs) Dude, they had one album, like probably nobody's listened to it. I got turned on to it by the our friends over on on Sale of Satan, because they talk about it all the time. And I checked out the whole album and actually I'm in love with the entire record. The whole thing is. Yeah, you played some for me, I remember. And yeah, it's I mean it's very listenable for sure. So my honorable mentions one in excess need you tonight. Oh fuck yeah, yeah man. Definitely fucking awesome. Uh another would be I, I wanted a Madonna song. I was literally about to say I had a Madonna song on my list and somehow I accidentally crossed it out and I don't know what I replaced it with. Because like yeah. Material Girl is one of my favorite songs yeah. of Material all time. Material Girl is exactly what I was gonna name. It's such an awesome song. Uh yes. like Virgin also great. Fuck uh, yeah. Papa don't preach. Like she she was kicking ass in the eighties. Oh, so much good. So Lucky Star. I mean, golly, yeah. burning up. I love the early Madonna stuff so much. And though one of their very popular 80s hits is absolutely terrible, 
Jefferson Starship's Jane <laughs> is an awesome fucking song. Oh man, that's kind of a deep cut. I like that. Yeah, it's awesome though. It's a great. I mean, it's like, like it doesn't fit at all with the we built this city uh-uh. stupid shit. But it's <laughs> it's great. I love that song. Wow, dude, that's awesome, man. Yeah, those are some some good honorable mentions right there. All right, let's get up into this top three, Steve. Let's do it, man. All right, so. Right here, I'm going to dump one on you that's from a guy that made a very graceful transition from 70s rock stardom into the glitz and glamour of the 80s. In fact, a man who was timeless, a man who shifted his musicality and persona with every passing decade to always stay relevant, controversial, and interesting. But in the 80s, we had a Dave Bowie, what dropped a let's dance on our heads, and holy moly, it's a jammer. It is. That's a great song. Uh huh. I mean, of all the Bowie songs you could have picked, that one is probably, uh, probably my my favorite. Uh, kind of cheesy song that he has. Like Love it, it. It's like it's got a whiff of cheese to it. It's still oh, yeah. great and still like good David Bowie type of music making. But it's it's like got a whiff of cheese, and I think it's intentional, obviously. <laughs> And part of the reason it's so goddamn good is, for one, you got old steamy Ray Vaughn dropping a hot guitar solo on you, and motherfucking Nile Rodgers from Chic playing rhythm guitar. Actually, he produced the whole album and played rhythm guitar on it. Huh. No wonder it's fucking awesome. Damn. Oh, yeah, dude. What you got on your number three? Well, I mean, we can't skip him, uh, no matter how we feel about it. Michael Jackson is a king of pop, and he I mean, come the on, 80s. Yeah, yeah, you can't you can't deny it. And even if uh, even if you don't like Michael Jackson, which from what we know you probably shouldn't, we can still all agree I love those Quincy Jones songs. Yep, that's true. <laughs> so think of it that way. Think of it that come way. Come on, <laughs> yeah, it's like you said. It's like you couldn't go anywhere in the '80s and not hear Michael Jackson. What's your pick no. for an MJ tune? Uh, Thriller. I think is on, the yeah. yeah, it's the definitive '80s Michael Jackson tune. Also, the most horror appropriate. That's true, but I uh, sold like crazy. The video was extremely popular, and it's still awesome. The song's oh, yeah. great. The yeah, going back and watching the video, you still get to see. Just I I don't know, like why Michael Jackson thought. I want to do a horror movie song slash video, but I'm yeah. glad he did. <laughs> yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah. Changed the music video industry entirely, too. Yeah. Great choice. I also have an MJ pick on here as well. I figured that you would probably toss a thriller on, so yeah. I went with a little less obvious, but so fucking bang in tune. Name a PYT. Pretty young thing. Hell yeah. Awesome. That's a jam of jams right there, Yes, dude. it is. All right. Well, Ben, if we're hitting number one, I'm going to drop a journey, don't stop believing on you. Holy moly. What a whopper of a number one that is right there. That is very hard to argue with right there. I just hit your pogs with my slammer. (laughs) I've been slammed. You got slammed. (laughs) Yeah, journey, don't stop believing. Can you do any better than a journey song in the 80s? It's... Uh, I mean, you got the falsetto, you got the synthesizers, you got the amazing musicianship just going on in general. It every song is a banger, man. Yeah, journey, you're right? 
awesome videos back in the day too. Some Hell very yeah. silly shit going on. Very some of those. silly. Made no sense. Uh, I was obsessed with them as a kid. Still obsessed with them today. Cannot wrap my head around the. Um, oh fuck the. Uh, that video where they're on the pier. Separate ways. Separate ways. Yes. Can't get my head around <laughs> that separate ways video. We're what forty years away from it, and I'm still thinking about it every day. Like, what was going on there? <laughs> Why was this keyboard glued to the wall? Why? Why? What was that know. about? <laughs> I mean, so, it's really hard to to top a "Don't Stop Believing." That is yeah. an anthem got? for humans. But I'll tell you this, man. Whenever we had this idea to do this little top ten list of '80s hits. Number mm-hmm. one was already filled out. I just yeah, had yeah. to work backwards all the way <laughs> to figure out the other ones. Because what is almost one, as good as this song you, you had to think? Exactly. And honestly, not much. Because the one that I'm dropping on you here for my number one pick, it's not just the best song of the 80s. It's probably the best song of all time. Oh. Because let me ask you this. Can you think of any song that could be better than one that was originally written by Prince. Okay. That features Stevie Wonder playing harmonica. All right. Apparently, Reb Beach from Winger is on guitar on this song, which I don't okay. even hear guitar on it, so I don't know about that. And, of course, on the mic, we got motherfucking Chaka-Con, Chaka-Con. Because <laughs> I'm yeah. talking about I Feel For You by Chaka-Con, which is my favorite song yes. of all time. Okay. And I, I listen to it several times a week. And have for years, because it is the best song. Yeah, that's a great song. Absolutely. Wow. <laughs> I didn't, I did not expect that to drop as number one, but it is probably, it is pretty tip, typificational of the 80s. It typifies right. the 80s itself. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's mm-hmm. the best. I never get tired of that song ever. <laughs> wow. And if I ever do, I just listen to the Prince version. <laughs> yeah. Because it's all just switch awesome. it up. <laughs> uh huh. So there we go. We got our top 10 list. Hell I hope yeah. Patrick Bateman would approve oh, of yeah. our choices. I'm not sure if he would, though. They're I don't think he would. Hits. I don't think he would approve of uh, several of those. Yeah. Let us know your let us know your top 10 80s hits over there on the Facebook group. I'd love to catch what some of your alls are. Uh, just go there and join the Facebook group, the Dead and Lovely Horror Podcast group on the Facebook, and you can join in the chat with all the cool kids. Yep, facebook.com forward slash dead and lovely. Head on over yeah, there. Yeah, damn right. All right, Steve, now that we've plowed through these 80s hits, let's talk about a little flick that came out in the year 2000. Whoa. Was it written by a robot? <laughs> I'm talking about American Pasicho. <laughs> and I'm assuming that this was not the first time you saw American Pistachio, is it? It is not the first time I saw American Pistachio. I uh, saw it way back in the day, but it was the best time I've watched American Psycho because I, I liked it even more. I know, right? Yep. I was really wondering if this was going to hold up because, you know, it came out in 2000 and our good, our good friend Brandon Suttles showed it to us probably around... I'm going to say probably around 2004 or five, something like that. Yeah. And it was like mind blowing the first time that we watched it. And it just kind of became one of those where it's like, whenever you get together with friends and you're going to watch a movie, you got to ask, it's like, have you seen American Psycho? Oh, you haven't? We're watching that. That's what we're watching. Yeah. It was one of those movies that like, I kind of became evangelical about where I was like, I want other people to watch this movie because 
I loved it so much. And then sometime in there, like we liked the movie so much that Kate decided to read the book by Brett Easton Ellis. Uh huh. And she hated it so fucking much. <laughs> and she would just like tell me stuff about it and be like, God, in this chapter I read today, it was just you know, 20 pages about this name brand shirt. Like, it sounds like the book is extremely tedious and monotonous to read because it takes his, like, you know, brand name obsessions and stuff like that to absolutely insane levels, apparently, in the book. So she got so burnt out on it, and I was also just kind of like, God, this sounds terrible, that we didn't watch the movie for years. This is probably the first time I've watched this movie in, I bet, 10 years. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so the, still the, fucking loved it. The novel had a very negative effect. <laughs> apparently. And, and okay. apparently, like, I get that from a lot of other people. I, I've talked to other people that have read it, and they're just like, yeah, it's way overboard on the descriptive yeah. stuff in it and is apparently not a very fun read. So, yeah. Huh. Uh, do you think, is anybody turned off by Brad Easton Ellis's uh, ridiculous presence on Twitter? Is that oh, I don't know your... anything about that. Oh, well, he's ridiculous. Yeah? Um, yeah, yeah, pretty ridiculous. Oh, um, I didn't know that. <laughs> he's a defender of Trump, for sure. What? Yeah. What? How could the person that wrote this book defend uh-huh. Trump? This book that is about Donald Trump. Yeah. Um, <laughs> how did he defend Trump? Uh, I think he does. he says and does a lot of shit to be provocative. Um, yeah, yeah. Because that's what got him to where he is and um yeah i don't know yeah uh, mind-blowing to me but anyway and let me just uh, go ahead and put out a little little trigger uh trigger snowflake warning (laughs) right yeah (laughs) we get a lot of a a lot of backlash from people who are just like oh they fucking talk bad about trump i hate these guys blah 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 This is probably not going to be the episode for you. Yeah, this is not the one for you, pal. Uh, yeah, because the you thing know that I realized about this is that, you know, when the book came out in what the... It was 87. Late, 87. Oh, wait, the book oh, no, came out, uh, not, it came out in 91. Sorry. Okay, so Based whenever the book came out, it was extremely relevant in yep. that, you know, the, the end That's, of the Reagan era. Yep. And then when the movie came out, it was like kind of not relevant and novel and... Watching it again now, I'm like, oh, it's extremely relevant again because everything right. just happens in cycles. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, though, when Trump was saying make America great again, this was the America he was talking about. So it's almost like the cycle created itself. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is what he was wanting. And so anyway, uh, yeah, if uh, if you're a big Trump fan, this episode's not going to be for you, but I don't know how you would enjoy American Psycho uh, unless you watch American Psycho and go like, yeah, he's like real cool and he kills people and stuff. <laughs> he's a hero. Right, yeah. So if you see him as the hero, <laughs> you'll probably not like us talking about um, his connections to Trump, the obvious... Um, connections that mary heron and uh guinevere turner were trying to make between him and trump and him and ted bundy which are definitely coming from brett easton ellis who Mm -hmm. was uh making a a novel that wasn't going to include the violence it was really just going to be exploring the psychology of this character until he had a dinner with some stockbroker friends and listened to them basically the whole time praising donald trump uh, and so 
he decided that he would be a serial killer. He'd be a psychopath. Wow. That's crazy. There, <laughs> yeah. There's apparently a lot of stuff in the book that goes on and on about his yeah. adoration oh, yeah. He's of, of Donald Trump. with like, Trump, yeah. Yeah, like he wants to be Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> Yeah, uh, the movie that should made, worry you a little bit, maybe, maybe. You should. I don't know. The, th- the president of the United States um, is is this uh, the the one thing that's majorly different for sure is that Patrick Bateman is able to remain calm and use like his charisma and allure to put people at ease. Trump doesn't do any of that. He's just like, I got a whole bunch of money, so you got to do what I want you to do. <laughs> like, he, he doesn't have any sort of subtlety to his character. So, in, in that way, that's where the Ted Bundy comes in. And, of course, in the movie, he mentions Ted Bundy uh, a couple times. Like, he, he's definitely um, supposed to be a reflection of, of these two individuals. But, yeah, I, yeah, I, I don't know how... I don't know how you... It, it, I don't know how you know that the entire decade of the 80s existed and that throughout the 80s, everyone was clowning on Trump. Yeah, yeah. He was like and the punchline at the end of every rich guy yep, joke. Yep. Uh, and then people are like just 40 years later, basically, are like, yeah, no, nah, it's cool. He should be president. <laughs> <laughs> it's cool. And also, also too, just another little warning about this is this is one of those movies that you do not want spoiled for you, and we are going to spoil the fuck out of it. So if you've oh, not yeah, watched yeah. this so, movie, watch it. It's fucking mm-hmm. awesome. And then finish the episode, because this is one of those ones that, like, I remember the first time that it got to the end of the movie, my mind was just erased. Absolutely mind-blowing movie. Yeah. Uh, so don't let us ruin it for you. If you haven't watched it, yeah. Yes, we recommend that you do. <laughs> now, so, Steve, this movie had kind of a rocky lead-up to its production. Of course, Brett Easton Ellis uh, wrote the book, which was phenomenally uh-huh. controversial. Holy yeah, moly. Super it's like up there with like the satanic uh, verses and all that kind of shit. Uh, yeah. He had like death threats issued on him. He was afraid to go on a publicity tour because people were like threatening violence against him. Yeah. Very controversial book. Yeah, it was very controversial, and uh, that actually made it hard to get the movie made. Uh, when uh, they were shopping it around, nobody wanted to distribute it, basically. Sure. yeah. So it, it took a while that the, the rights to the film were actually bought in 1992. So in 92, they were working toward making the movie, and at the Whoa. time... Yeah, at the time, Johnny Depp was interested in starring. That could have worked. Sure, yeah. It definitely could have, yeah. I think uh, uh, at the time, too, Johnny Depp hadn't really become a much bigger star. He still was kind of like, remember him from 21 Jump Street and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it could have worked. Then the project eventually did get to the point where they were maybe going to have distribution, and they, they got David Cronin, well... They went to Stuart Gordon, director of Reanimator, first. Mm. Uh, but he, he wasn't interested in the project, so they went to David Cronenberg. Oh, shit. And it was going to be Cronenberg directing, and they were looking at Brad Pitt, Whoa. potentially. I would love and to visit that alternate universe and see that. Uh, maybe. I, I don't know if it could work 
quiet as well because the whole time you would have been watching it going that's brad pitt because brad true. pitt yeah. was brad pitt already in 2000 but at the time that they were considering it he was a bit more obscure so if they had done it in the early 90s yeah i could see that working really well because he's he does have that like you know physique and the and uh, just the features and all the the stuff that you need to present this uh overly outwardly attractive but inwardly dark character i think he could have mm-hmm. played it probably yeah. uh then eventually we get to a point where david cronenberg drops out and then mary heron is super interested and she and uh guinevere turner wrote a up an ad or a, a script the script that they wrote is basically the movie we see but they didn't get to make it at that point (laughs) um because once they sold the uh distribution rights finally to lionsgate lionsgate wanted a bigger name and mary heron has already started putting her cast together like she she was insistent on christian bale she really wanted uh jared leto and um somebody else can oh uh willem dafoe like she mm-hmm. was she was insistent she had to have them and lionsgate wanted a bigger name if they were gonna you know distribute it so they approached leonardo dicaprio who was interested okay. yeah in doing the the project and was gonna get paid 21 million so the budget went from Ooh. uh uh i think at the time it was about to be eight million to 40 million dollars well that's because i mean you had the star of fucking titanic in it by that point i mean by the year 2000 he was ginormous he was gigantic and he gave them a short list of directors he would work with which included of course martin scorsese uh oliver stone and somebody else okay some other huge name anyway so it was gonna cost them so much money and they get oliver stone and then they're working with a script that basically is um, a real close adaptation of the book and has none of the satire that Mary Heron and uh, Genevieve Turner's script had. It That's what I was wondering about. More of a... Yeah, because the book doesn't have that satire. Yeah, yeah. Kate said that it it is all extremely dry and very, very dark and uh, very flat in a lot of ways because it's all yeah. Bateman's internal narrative so of course right. it's not going to have anything witty in it so yeah yeah i love though that they did interject that into the script and find ways to make this just <laughs> something other than completely nihilistic and bleak yeah because i'm thinking of that movie with oliver stone and the superstar leonardo dicaprio and it's like okay this i mean i'm i'm never going to get into the psyche of patrick bateman because i'm watching leonardo dicaprio yeah, like, totally. I it really needs a unknown name. And so eventually um Leonardo DiCaprio dropped out to go uh film The Beach for which mm. he received a Razzie uh Ooh. nomination for worst actor. <laughs> hey, I'll put this out there, man. The book by Alice Garland is fucking awesome. The yeah, book of I'm, The Beach I'm sure. is great. Danny Boyle, you would expect it to be good, but anyway. It's not very um, good. <laughs> no. Uh, so he left, and so Oliver Stone left, and then 
basically Mary Heron was there like, hey, can I still make the movie I wanted to make? And they were like, fine, but you have to keep it under $10 million. And so she uh, ended up spending only seven. That's nuts. Cause I mean, that she's is a nuts. badass. <laughs> yeah. In the yeah. year 2000, spending $7 million on a movie was... To make this level of movie as well. Yeah. That's yeah. a tiny, tiny budget, man. Yeah. Uh, I, she she was insistent on Christian Bale the whole time. And uh, as we know about Christian Bale, because of, of this movie, we know this, uh, he's a very dedicated actor. He yeah. spent months and months. Um, he he didn't take any auditions for nine months while all this shit was going on in the background and not knowing if he had a role or not. But the whole wow. time he was working out, the entire time developing the character for nine months. Uh, and then finally, when they decide to go with Mary Heron, uh, they they got him into the gym with physical uh, physical trainer and got him even bigger. And, that's uh, insane. Yeah, he's uh, shredded in this. Yeah, he's huge. Uh, which is crazy because the machinist is just a couple of years after this. And then he's Batman, like a and year then after he's that. Batman, a year after that. Like it, that level of dedication. Like it's, it's the type of dedication from like say Lon Chaney. Uh, if, go check out Legacy of Brutality episode hey. two, whatever. Uh, <laughs> Lon Chaney. Like uh, the these actors that are willing to just put themselves through hell to really embody a role. And yeah, actors lucky. are crazy people. They're That's crazy true. people, dude. That's true. Uh, <laughs> we're very lucky that Mary Heron was insistent on this and pushed this because it gave us Christian Bale and it gave us this performance, like, and and all of his future performances because he he was able to do what he he really knew was right, able to really embody the role, and the director just trusted him to make it what it is. It's crazy too that she had instantly that much faith in him. I guess because yeah. she watched him in in Newsies. Like, what, <laughs> what was he in up to this? Little uh, Women wasn't see. he? Little Women or something? Uh, um, yeah, he was in a few smaller roles. Yeah, I uh, he had been in Portrait of a Lady, uh, Jane Campion's film, uh, a couple of years before this. Maybe that was it. But yeah, I don't I don't know why she had so much faith in him other than just seeing his level of dedication and knowing he he's absolutely gonna nail it. Apparently he stayed in the American accent the whole time and this is before he was famous. So at the rap party he was speaking with a British accent and a lot of the members of the crew thought he was just putting on an accent. No shit. Yeah, he because just he never just dropped it the whole never time. Never dropped the American accent. Yeah. So. It's crazy too, because like just watching this, knowing that you'd never guess that he wasn't American. Like his no, pronunciation no. and diction and stuff is perfect. Yeah. I I would uh, I would like to ask my wife. She can almost always tell when someone is a British or Australian and speaking with an American accent. I'd have to ask hmm. my wife if she could tell. But I I think he nails it. I think he's he's doing such a great job with it. Wow, uh, man. You know, and, and we look at this cast, and it's like, how is this $7 million? But you just Dude, have to remember, I know. most of these people weren't famous yet. They weren't huge yet, at least. I had totally forgotten how many people were in this flick. I mean, obviously, I remember Christian Bale. This is like pre-Batman and stuff. But, like, I forgot that Willem Dafoe is in yep. this as the detective. Willem Dafoe's in this, being awesome, uh, yeah. with that Willem Dafoe face. <laughs> that face that he has. <laughs> He's got one. Um, Reese Witherspoon? Holy Reese shit, I forgot she was in, in here, yeah. dude. 
this is as his, just like, a little out after girlfriend. cruel intentions. So she's popular at this time, but she still hasn't, you know, done legally blonde or sweet home Alabama. She's not like America's sweetheart. Right, right. And uh, Chloe Seventy is the secretary in this. Hell Completely yeah. forgot she was in this, dude. Yeah. I mean, she was in everything in the, the 90s and two th- early 2000s, I think. She did so much stuff. Yeah, totally. Jared Leto in here. Jared Leto. Yeah, this is just after Fight Club and, you know, uh, My So-Called Life. So he's, he's like, you know, becoming popular, but he's still not the Jared Leto we know now. And then there's also that one guy that I always think is Matthew McConaughey, but he never is. <laughs> <laughs> he's like uh, one of his friends. I think he's even in like Josh, Sweet Home Alabama or something. Yeah, Josh Lucas. Yeah, he yeah, is, that guy. He's in Sweet Home Alabama. He's also in Session Nine, which we did last year. Uh, oh, oh, fuck! That's what I knew him from. Yes. Yeah, he's he's good. I like him. Uh, he he really sells asshole well. Yeah, he does very very well. <laughs> oh, we also have like Justin Thoreau in here. Who's that? Uh, he's married to Jennifer. He's the guy who, when they're in the cocaine stall, who, uh, the one guy's like, Oh, I'm trying right. to do drugs over here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. Oh, that's, dude. Which by the way, like in a post COVID world, scenes like that are just that much grosser. Crazy. Like, yeah, dude, he's snorting cocaine in a public bathroom with like a, a million other people in there. And then he also like rubs his finger on his teeth and gums. Yeah. <laughs> Was that a bathroom or were those just cocaine stalls? Yeah, really. I, I mean, what's the diff, toilets. really? <laughs> <laughs> I assume in 1987, it was just like tomato, tomato, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, Justin Thoreau. Uh, who else have we got in here? Oh, Crazy uh, Matt, cast. Matt Ross, who plays Lewis, uh, he's, he's been in a few things. He's in Silicon Valley, and uh, he was in the first season of American Horror Story, but I really, I like, he's got a great look. Yeah, um, totally. He just has that very distinctive look. And, I mean, he's supposed to specifically stand out uh, against this sea of men who are interchangeable to the point where they call each other by the wrong names all the time. Yeah, It's like they don't even know each other at all because they all look the same and dress the same and like the same things and do the same things. Uh, Lewis is the one standout, and we find out he's gay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's the only one that doesn't really dress like everybody and like yeah, his hairstyle he actually has is some style he has some flair to him yeah like he's even mm-hmm. wearing a bow tie what <laughs> could you imagine that's one of those things that really stood out to me this time while watching the movie is how all the guys and all the girls in it really that are like connected the to same. these dudes are just clones of each other yep. yeah absolutely mm-hmm. so they are all just carbon copies and yep. Even like during like, you know, like everyone knows the business card scene where they're comparing their business cards and, and they're stuff. just the same fucking card. Yeah. It's like yeah. there's nothing about them that's different at all. But these guys will find ways to stay competitive and greedy and jealous. Even if yep. they all have the same thing. Yeah. There's still always going to be this drive that mine has to be better than that guy's. Even if he has the exact same thing as you. He's ready to kill Lewis because Lewis did something different. He yeah. had gold lettering instead of black. <laughs> like and and dude, like even the way that they're constantly fucking each other's names up and stuff yeah. in this really stood out to me this time too. Yeah, they call each other the wrong name. Like it's it is it is about their interchangeability and about yeah. how like in a lot of ways Patrick Bateman 
is all of them. He, like, you could even, there's a reading of this for sure where Patrick Bateman isn't a character at all, but a representation right? of their, their singular uh, aspect that they all have in common, which is they don't care. Yeah, exactly. They and they're, and they're all care. the same person. So it's like yep. at that point, what does it even matter who it is, who is killing the other person? It doesn't yep. matter because they're all doesn't just matter. clones. They all have this like hive mind mm-hmm. and yep. they all just have been assimilated by this culture of greed and wealth and materialistic stuff that was so, so at its peak in 1987 i mean we're talking about the the reagan era we're talking mm-hmm. about wall street had just come out yeah it had <laughs> and and it was it was showing and somewhat celebrating the that culture yeah it's this is the the height of that time and as a result of that lifestyle that all these guys are pursuing they they lose all individualistic nature it's all about just blending in and yeah. having more yeah, and that, being the same patrick says all of i mean he says i to his his fiance i want to fit in like that that's the yeah. most important thing to him like he also i mean he the opening really lays out the uh reasoning behind what i was saying that he's not even a character perhaps in in the the film that he's he's a he's just just this imaginary figure that represents all of them he says in the beginning there is an idea of a patrick bateman some kind of abstraction but there is no real me only an entity something illusory and though i can hide my cold gaze and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours and maybe you can even sense that our lives are probably comparable I simply am not there. Wow. That does kind of make it sort yeah. of obvious when you say it that way, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That he's just a representation of all their greed. Each of these crimes could be any one of those individuals. Like, they probably all are in some ways guilty of each of the crimes that are shown. So, yeah, Bateman, Patrick Bateman is he. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. I want to look at it some other ways. That is one way of looking at it and an interesting way to read it, I think. But. I think there's I think there's more to be pulled out of it than just he's not even real. Yeah, cuz you can you can get yeah. into all that stuff especially when you start thinking about the the ending of the movie and yeah. whether he killed all those people whether or he not. killed anybody at all, yeah. Uh I I think I mean the book is pretty much indicating that he didn't kill anybody. Yeah. The the movie makes it much more uh vague as to whether or not he does or not. I think it's possible and maybe even most probable that he does kill some of the people. He, okay. Some of them are his fantasies and some of them are actual kills. Um, I, I do believe that the bodies that we see in Paul's apartment whenever he's chasing uh, Christine... I do believe that those bodies were there and he goes back to that apartment to clean up and they have been removed. I, I think that the I think that's supposed to have happened because of the way that the real the realtor lady reacts to him. Like she obviously knows, like, oh, he was the one responsible for those corpses. But the message of the movie is 
that this system covers up for itself. So right, yeah. because the Manhattan real estate market is so competitive, a, a agent came in, saw dead prostitute bodies, and cleaned up for him. Because, yeah, because otherwise you couldn't make a buck. Yeah. What what benefit is it her is it for her for him to go to jail? Mm-hmm. It's more of a hassle for her. All she has to do is just clean up and sell this to somebody. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that those deaths, at least, and those are the deaths, the killings of people who are, um, I guess, in his world, ants. They're they're nothing. Like the he kills uh, a homeless man. He kills uh, sex workers. Like. He kills these people who don't matter to anyone in his mind. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the movie's trying to like give us, at the very least, the the glimmer. And I know it doesn't sound like much of a glimmer of hope, but the glimmer of hope that not only is he this terrible narcissist monster, but he is actually killing these people because that's how terrible and horrendous he is. Like We want him to be that monster. We don't want it at the end to just be like, oh, these were just his fantasies. Like, uh, I mean, like that is like oh, a, still a condemnation of this type of behavior, but it's it kind of like reins it back too much for me. I want him to be a psycho so that I can hate him. Well, and that's the thing about the movie, too, is like even if he didn't do all the stuff that you were shown and that he fantasized he about, he wants to. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And it's like it's just kind of showing you that that is the type of sociopathic uncaring personality that this business and this lifestyle breeds yep. i mean there's a reason why so many captains of industry and ceos and stuff like that are literal sociopaths it's because yeah. you have to be to cut the throat of the man that's on the next rung of the ladder ahead of yeah. you and make decisions that literally put people's lives at stake i mean i yeah. know you're talking about you know oh stock trades and real estate yada 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 that stuff results in people dying. I mean, whenever yeah. pharma bro jacked up the price of EpiPens and stuff like that. People died. People fucking died. Yep. And I think that that's also part of what this movie is saying, too, is like whether or not he did it with his own hands, the decisions that these type of people make do end up killing people, and they don't care, and they also receive no punishment for it. Uh, by the way, that Pharma Bro stuff is a good example of what I'm saying about this system that cleans up for itself. Oh, yeah. People people will get the idea that Pharma Bro went to jail because he jacked up the prices of EpiPens. But that is not what happened. In no. fact, nothing changed in regards to that. He went to jail because he screwed other rich people. Yeah. <laughs> That's what happened. Yeah. He did not go to jail for people dying because of his decision. He went to jail because he lost rich people's money. So keep in mind, the system cleans up for itself. It does not care about you. That's what this movie's saying, and it seems to be the truth. Oh, yeah, and that's that's really exemplified in parts where you've got, you know, Patrick Bateman dragging a body bag out of his place uh-huh. in, a, in a suit jacket bag. Yep. And uh, I think it's Lewis or one of those guys like, yeah, sees Lewis. it happening. He's like, is that a Louis Vuitton bag? Yep. Like, he doesn't even think twice about the corpse that's in it. Nope. All he doesn't sees care. is the bag, the name brand, designer ta- thing. Like, getting Patrick Bateman arrested for that is only going to create an enemy because he's going to have enough money to get lawyers to get him off entirely. 
And now you have a competitor that you tried to take out with something like that. So, yeah. Like, it just seems like it's a constant calculation with each of them. Like, he will say out loud, I'm a murderer. And they're just like, huh? Cool, so what are you doing next week? Like, Yeah. Like, it's like, I don't care. I am amoral. (laughs) Like, your confession is, is to an absolute amoral character who does not give a shit if you're murdering sex workers or killing homeless men and their dog right yeah because like i said all these cats do have literal blood on their hands at the end of the day as far as i'm concerned if you're making decisions like that out of greed or want for power that are literally you know making little kids die when they don't have an epi pen and they just got stung by a bee you're right. a murderer. <laughs> I mean, I mean all, all of the atrocities that we look at are all financial in in nature. Like the kids in cages, it's because we have prison contracts that have to be fulfilled. We have yeah. to fill certain seats. So many people are in jail because those contracts are there and the state either has to pay for an empty bed or for a prisoner. Hey, I can't remember. Do those lives matter? According to All Lives Matter, do lives of kids oh, in cages? Right, right. Are those part of the All Lives? <laughs> I think. I think what people are skipping is the uh, the silent white in there. All white oh. lives matter is what they're saying. Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. got it. <laughs> uh, but they, they're also forgetting the comma unless you're a woman. Oh, right. That right. Too. Or poor. <laughs> or the wrong religion. Guys, I'm telling you, the further and further you get into your shitty white supremacy shit, the more I fucking hate you. God damn it. (laughs) If you're listening right now, you fucking racist, eat shit. God damn. (laughs) What is wrong with you? Why can't we just have nice things? We're trying to live in a society. We are. Jesus. (laughs) Racists don't deserve entertainment. Everybody who makes entertainment and tries to stay out of politics because... You think, oh, everybody deserves entertainment, or, oh, I want to appeal to the world. No, fucking let people know your politics from the beginning, and you won't have to deal with shedding them as you go. Also, I don't don't really worry about offending racists, so. Yeah, fuck (laughs) them. Who gives a shit if a racist is offended? Oh, no. Oh, your feelings, your racist little feelings. I don't (laughs) give a shit. Anyway. But, you know, I think in this movie, too, like, the thing that people always point out is that, oh, man, you know, he couldn't have killed Paul Allen because that dude says he just had lunch with Paul Allen in London or whatever. Yeah, but they mix each other up all the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I think at the end of the movie, the fact that you're kind of left with this, like, did he kill them or did he not? Right. I think the real question is, is would it matter one way or the other if he did does or it, didn't? Yeah, does it change anything if it's true or not true? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's like, what's worse if he carried these things out or if he fantasized about them very actively and wanted to do it? Um, yeah. And I in fact, we're just kind convinced of himself he did do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Because that's how real he wanted that to be. Yeah. And that's something, too, that I think is really fascinating in the movie is that, you know, we, we see him consuming media. We see him consuming videotapes, which, of course, he has to go return right. some videotapes. Right. He's a he's big 80s pop fan, porn fan, and horror fan. Yeah. All that we see him watch is sex or violence. He's watching yeah. porn or he's watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. And even the way that some of those scenes in the movie play out, 
it's clear that, you know, if those are his fantasies, his fantasies were just directly injected into his head by media. He has no ideas of his own. He has no, no fantasies of his he's, own. His fantasy yeah, of he's sex. Blank. Yeah, his fantasy of sex is just exactly what he saw in that porn. His mm -hmm. fantasy of violence is exactly what he saw in TCM. I mean, that yep. whole scene at the end of the movie where he's chasing her around with a chainsaw. Yeah, that's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Yeah. And she's screaming bloody yep. murder. Like, mm -hmm. it got to that point where, like, she'd been screaming her head off for a while. And I was like, God, this reminds me of Texas Chainsaw. Oh, yeah, he was watching that earlier. Yeah. So even his fantasies aren't his own. Everything about him no. is just things that have been injected into him by pop culture and uh that wealthy society yeah yeah i uh, i think uh definitely they injected some of that because of the association with ted bundy because ted bundy basically laid the blame for his uh desire to kill on porn which is oh, yeah. bullshit and Absolute he was bullshit. full of shit constantly lying uh just to make himself seem better because that's what he did that was his entire being. He was a liar. Nothing about him was ever honest. So he could easily lay the blame on porn. Uh, but the idea that, yeah, he's just this blank slate where everything he consumes is, is basically his mode of thought. I think that's interesting considering what we do know about Donald Trump as president. Because mm. we do know he spends an inordinate number of hours sitting in front of the TV consuming media, and then he's constantly on his phone consuming media, and yeah. that everything he consumes, he takes in as either, if it's praising him, it's true, if it's not praising him, it is fucking fake news by these uh, goddamn traitors that are trying to destroy capitalism. Uh, so it's it's something I, I find interesting that if Ellis knew, because I, I know he consumes, I mean, that's why in the book he's talking so much about products. Like, he's so easily swayed by advertisement and, like, the idea of, like, this thing is the best thing, the top right. thing. You have to have the absolute best. Like, I wonder if Ellis n knew this about Trump or if it, it really was like he was just writing, this is what a sociopath would be. And then it turns out that that is what Trump is. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's just, I'm just like, writing about a generic Wall Street greedy sociopath. Right. And, and then, I was right. <laughs> got, got it. I, I, wonder, I wonder if he, because like, I would assume he, from his conversations with the wall street guys that really influenced him to make patrick bateman uh, a killer i would assume a lot of that was actually stuff they were telling him about trump yeah so I, like i i'm guessing that it some had of to this come really, from somewhere yeah some of this really did sneak in from from actual knowledge about trump so that that's interesting to me yeah 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 i think i think that you're right and, you know, another thing, too, on the subject of kind of the end of the movie where, you know, he's gone through this whole process where he maybe did or didn't kill all these people. He right. makes that phone call confessing to his lawyer. Right. <laughs> and then he sees no consequence None. whatsoever. There is what? no punishment. So, there is no catharsis. He shoot as someone he on Main Street or whatever. Yeah. Fifth Avenue. That's what he said. I think that, like, what kind of end up, ends up happening here is that, you know, he spent the whole movie 
treating everybody's life like it's worthless and just meaningless to him. I mean, he kills these people without even thinking twice about it. Towards the end of the movie, he just goes on a killing spree and just shoots people just for yeah. no reason at all. And I think what he kind of realizes there towards the end is that, you know, maybe without that catharsis, without that punishment for his actions, his life is just as worthless to the people that he surrounds himself with as all these, you know, so-called worthless people are to him. Yeah. I think I mean, that he, he realizes, like, in the eyes of all these other Wall Street dudes that he's always trying to constantly live up to and impress and do better than, all of their lives are worthless in each other's eyes. Right. Uh, I mean, his, fi- his final line is, my confession has meant nothing, or this confession has meant nothing. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah it really, it's interesting. Like, the, the ways in which either... Like, it, it it may be playing with our expectations of reality, but I think it's more showing his vision of reality, which is that he does all these terrible things and he's never held accountable for them. So in his mind, he thinks, did it even happen? Right, like, yeah. He doesn't, he, like, there's a definite way of seeing this where he is doing absolutely all of this and every bit of it's just being covered up and dismissed because he's extremely rich Mm -hmm. and so his in his mind like there is no sort of reality because the expectation would be there would be some reprisal some something would happen right but But there's no punishment for the elite there's never any punishment yeah yeah i mean that's the thing is like at the end of the day you know you or me could walk out our door with a fucking joint behind our ear and go to jail for it yep absolutely Meanwhile, if you're some kind of gigantic, mega wealthy, you know, real estate mogul or something like that, and you decide to evict an entire building or like, I'm going to demolish this housing project to make room for yada, yada, yada. And you lead to the deaths of dozens or hundreds of people. There's no consequence. There are people out there. There are uh, white people out there right now selling marijuana legally, making billions of dollars a year on it. And there are black people sitting in jail for doing the same thing literally the same thing yeah yeah like (laughs) there's if that system isn't at the very least biased somewhat towards white people i'll eat a hat just any (laughs) hat just bring me a hat i'll eat it i i'm i just yeah that that's so glaring and this movie is really like putting that out on front street like just so glaring how they can just get away with anything yeah no doubt man because they're all identityless. i mean i even wonder <laughs> if i even wonder if patrick bateman was ever even that guy's original name i mean the way that he just That's like true. picks he up and goes is like oh i'm paul allen or at one point somebody mistakes him for what's the name it's not Habersburger. it's like Habsburger or something yeah like yeah, that. yeah. i know you're talking about yeah that's, Somebody assumes uh, that that's him, and he just goes with it. He's like, I am that person now. Yeah. Yeah, he's so easily able to just fall into a role that, yeah, we, we don't even know the reliability of, of whether or not he is who he says he is. Like, he yeah. could have he could have uh, Costanza'd him himself into that job. Yeah, just, uh, exactly. Like, I work here now, you know? Yeah, my dad's uh, the CEO or something. Like, they're never going to talk to the CEO to ask, so... No. <laughs> and, like, even the doorman's like, how are you doing tonight, Mr. Smith? Right. Like, who the fuck is he? Who the fuck is he is a good question. <laughs> yeah. In a lifestyle where everybody is so identical, 
it is scary that they could all be swimming in and out of all these different identities, all these different names, yeah. because what's the name matter? They're all the same person. I've thought about this so much in the more recent days uh, where how, what what was it that was ever preventing people from lying about who they were before the Internet? Oh, I know, right? Like, it's like, so easy to disprove now, but back in the day, it's just like, new town, yeah. new me. Yeah, just, I'll get I'll get on 40 and drive a few hundred miles, and I'll walk into a town and say, my name is something else. And yeah, what are they going to do? Like, how would they ever figure it out? It would They would have to have a reason to even investigate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. just ridiculous. Is he says he is. <laughs> it's, it's crazy how, how much... Uh, how much of human history was just down to relying on people to just be honest? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and how much of the the internet that is, by the way. Uh, so much of like people like uh, you know, boomers and even some Generation X people who didn't grow up with computers and now are you know constantly online. They didn't go through the phase a lot of us did in the 90s where it was like, oh, people can just say whatever the fuck they want on the internet. It's not all true. <laughs> it's not real. Like, yeah, so like a lot of, you know, people in their their 40s and 50s now are finally getting on Facebook and then they everything they see they're like, "Oh, that must be true." That's definitely real. You can't right. just say things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding, man. And that's the funny thing too is like I remember whenever we got our first computer and, you know, it, our parents would be like don't go into those chat rooms. People aren't who they say they are. Mm-hmm. And now, and now, like they're totally reposting stuff from like bots that they don't know yeah. in real life, and they just yeah. assume that they're real. It's like you guys need to remember, Guys, not everybody who they say they are. John seven four six three seven five four seven three says that Trump <laughs> just cured cancer. So must be true. Must be true. That's what I want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's the thing: this movie is absolutely dominated by dudes that are all just you know white straight males all over the whole movie and right. the way that the women and people of color are represented in this movie is in some people's eyes pretty controversial they think that it seems very racist and very misogynist uh, what well, is your take on that i mean it is but it, that's because it's supposed to be right like he's the, he's the bad guy he's not a he's, good guy he's a racist and he's a misogynist and he kills doggies like guys if you're watching this movie and at the end you're like oh that was pretty misogynist i think you missed the point uh, yeah that, i think you missed the part that it's not glorifying yeah any of that. this guy's not cool it's saying <laughs> this is this is what these guys are they are racist they are misogynist the most ridiculous shit usually too it's the stuff they're saying in this like wh- like uh, a woman can't be smart and attractive and like a woman shouldn't talk. Like they were basically just saying the most disgusting shit you can say. Yeah. Uh, it, it, I just, man, those those are really bummer conversations for me. Yeah. I do not want to be a part of. No, and that's the thing is like I really think that people sort of miss the point if they watch this and they're like, he's so violent against women. It's a misogynistic, anti-feminist movie. It's like he's not a good person, and they're not glamorizing any of this yeah. stuff. They're not trying to, like, get you on his side. Yeah. By, he's that, not a sympathetic character whatsoever. I think if I they would have made him a sympathetic character where it was like, oh, he came from a broken home, blah, 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 that's why he is the way he is, 
then yeah, that could have been like, okay, so you're saying it's okay for him to get away with what he was right. doing to women in this. Uh, that's not the case, though. He's supposed to be completely unrelatable and cold. Yeah. I think it's it's also like really just ignoring the fact that this is written by by two women and directed by a woman. Like they are probably trying to say something about the misogyny, not glorifying it. We're yeah. not watching fucking uh, Entourage. And I think it's also no mistake in here that the only non-white people are yeah. subservient to these yeah. guys. They're the people working in the laundromat. They're like yeah. doormen. They're homeless people. The homeless people. men, yeah. Yeah, yeah that, waiters. That homeless, situ- like, that homeless scene is uh, very hard to watch. Obviously, all of the scenes are hard to watch, <laughs> really. But That uh, scene is, is rough. He's just like, why don't you get a fucking job? Like He just <sighs> cannot empathize or relate. The idea of finding people who are as far down as you can be and then kicking them more that's the most uh disgusting element of all of this to me is that it's not even just about race or um sex it's about class it's it's about class i mean not that uh, obviously the other white men in this are all of the upper crust like do we see any other white men who are in subservient roles i mean even the private detective is dressed nice uh yeah it just seems like the that's what it's trying to get at is like this is the world these men live in and this is how they treat everyone who is not them yeah totally yeah i think i think so so i don't i don't see it as being misogynistic or racist in any kind of glorifying way are the characters yes but you're also not supposed to like them yeah yeah i hope you don't like them (laughs) it would be very bad although Uh, i do gotta say i do like his musical taste although i think there's definitely an ulterior (laughs) motive here dude whenever he starts talking about you know huey Huey lewis and the news or phil collins or there's like numerous speeches about you know his songs and stuff in here it always sounds, you know, kind of like what I was saying about his fantasies. They're not even his opinions. It sounds like he's reciting yeah, reviews that he read in Rolling Stone or something. Exactly. That is exactly what it sounds like. He's reciting reviews he read in Rolling Stone. And and that yeah. is it. Like, his, his life is finding what everyone else says is the best and having it. Yeah, exactly. Because that's the thing is, like, there's even a part in there, I think it's when he's talking about Huey Lewis in the news, where he's like, it's like the opposite of being a hipster where you're like, I liked it before it was cool. He's like, I didn't like it until it was cool to like it. Like he talks about how their yeah. early records were too new wave and too weird and experimental. But once they became yeah. a pop band and got number one hits, then I started to like them. Uh, he can only like it if it is the number one hottest, most popular thing. Yeah. He has to know that he is with the majority always so he can never be wrong. Yeah. That I mean, that is part of it. That's like such a deep part of the narcissist mentality is never being wrong, never accepting the idea that you could be wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because yeah. also having like an opinion of your own or a taste of your own means that right. you might be wrong. <laughs> yeah, people might not like it. Yeah, you. That's that's why he. I think that's why the scene with Lewis is so interesting when he follows him to the bathroom to strangle him. 
Oh, yeah. And then Lewis, like, kisses his hand. Like, the fact is he holds his hands up while Lewis is doing that. He doesn't, like, shriek away. We've seen him get touched other times and immediately be like, don't touch me. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it's he lingered. That's a a thing that I was kind of wondering about. What do you read into that as far as that that homosexual encounter he has? Yeah, I think he finds Lewis fascinating Mm -hmm. because... Lewis is going against all of his rules, but he's in the same circle with him, hmm, making the yeah. same level of money. He wants Lewis's wife, or future wife, like he wants to be Lewis more than anything. Hmm. But he is afraid. He's scared. Yeah. He can't put himself out there because he could be wrong. And that's the thing that I wonder about is like, what is that reaction about? Because you're right. He's going to strangle him. He turns around. Uh, Lewis like kisses his hand and he's so disgusted that like he, he washes, washes the gloves. his gloves. Like yeah. he's wearing the gloves and washes them. Maybe he's also just so disgusted with the whole situation because Lewis didn't run in terror. He didn't empower he didn't. him. You know? Yeah. yeah Lewis is, uh, Lewis is not afraid of him. No, and not at all. Some of it is because he uh, is attracted to him, and I think some of it is is maybe that that Lewis Lewis likes the edge to him. Like, Mm -hmm. Lewis likes that bit of danger to him. So I I think it's the same thing that attracts some of the women to him. Like, women are attracted to him for sure because he's uh, an attractive man. But, like, there is, like, that does seem to be in the scenes with... um, uh, uh, Chloe Sevigny and the scenes with uh, Lewis's fiance, there seems to be a good bit of them just wanting his approval more than anything. Like, yeah. if he if he will give them a little bit of approval, they'll give him everything. Yeah, yeah. I think that you're. I think you're right there. So we see him interacting with all these clones of himself, and everybody just turns a blind eye to how fucked up everybody is. And, and P.S. Like. Patrick Bateman is not this unique fucked up character in this movie. No, I think they're, they're all, all that fucked up. Uh-huh. But one thing I found kind of interesting is watching how, you know, quote unquote normal people, you know, people that uh-huh. aren't on his level of social standing react to how bizarre yeah. and plastic and fake he is. Like, especially when we get to see him interact mm. with uh, his secretary, Chloe Sevigny, and yeah. the blonde uh, sex worker that he gets a couple times oh, yeah. in the Cri- movie. Christine. Is what he calls yeah. her. But that is not her name. That He gives her a name. Christine. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, my God. But, like, there's multiple times in there where these women are looking at him just like, who the fuck is this guy? Yeah, what is It's like is they're seeing right through him. It's like your everyday common people looks at sociopath maniacs like this and uh-huh. sees right through them. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yeah, there's no hiding that, like, fakeness but when everyone else you're around is also fake like they're not going to call you out for being fake they're being fake too right yeah and you were mentioning to me how you found that that bateman kind of like does little subtle mind games with a lot of people probably just to show power to to yeah to really yeah to flex his superiority yes one of the things that stood out to me so hard that i had never thought about was when he asks uh, his secretary, Chloe Sevigny, out on a date. Yeah. When it cut to that scene, I hadn't watched it in a while. When it cut to that scene and I saw what he was wearing, I was like, that's not a 
that's not what Patrick Bateman would wear. Like it immediately was like that costume is wrong. Hmm. Um, and then watching it again, a few scenes before that, he pretends to be on the phone when the the uh, private investigator Willem Dafoe shows up. He pretends yeah. to be on the phone, and okay, so while he's on the phone, he's pretending to be talking to somebody who's I guess buying clothes, and he says. A bold striped shirt calls for a solid colored or discreetly patterned suit and tie. In the scene when he asks Chloe Sevigny out, uh, he is wearing a striped shirt with a striped jacket, going against huh. the rule that he established earlier. He I is did also not wearing. That. You know that's deliberate. It is very deliberate. He's also wearing a a bright red tie with blue suspenders. He's clowning her. He's saying, hmm. he's saying, like, I can dress like an absolute moron and she will still think I look good. Like, he is just really clowning on her. Uh, and it's, it's crazy because then for the date, all he does is change his tie to an even cl clownier tie. Hmm. Like, she shows up in, like, that nice dress and everything and he's, he just changed his tie. That's it. He doesn't care about her at all. And that's kind of the funny thing, too, about that. I hadn't thought about that, but, like, that's just the kind of joke that only his crowd would get. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like your everyday person mm -hmm. doesn't look at yeah. that and go, oh, okay, I get it. Mm -hmm. He's wearing the wrong tie with those suspenders or whatever. But to right. his crowd, that would be like, oh, I really see what you did there. Because they all just obsess over all the tiniest shit to conform yeah. and be like each other and look wealthy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And you can tell that he had no intention of taking her out at all. Like, he was hmm. not going to go out in that. He, yeah. was, he was just, he was planning on killing her, you know, as, as we know. And then he decides not to. And I think there was something there where the pleasure just wasn't there. Yeah. Like, he, he either wants them to be completely unsuspecting or, like with Christy, he really, he really got joy, it seemed, out of doing things directly in front of her, like drugging the wine right in front of her. Totally, right? Just I thought to that like, was like, that's not discreet at all. Yeah, it's just a power move. Just like, I'm going to drug this and you're going to drink it. Wow. Like, he, with everyone else, there's like so much of a game going on or like they're very much prey. And I think with her, with Chloe Sevigny, for some reason her uh lack of ability to see what he's doing just kind of makes the game no fun and he just decides like well, well i don't want to like yeah. it just seems so arbitrary but it's like the joy wasn't there he he was dancing around happily when he killed paul allen like he's he's uh living it up when he kills the sex workers or his uh, rich friend who was played by uh, Genevieve Turner, the writer, uh, when he's, you know, doing all that, he's having so much fun, but it's just like in that moment, it's like the fun's not there and he doesn't want to just go through the motions. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> just, like, that's so interesting to think about that a serial killer would be like, eh, I'm just not feeling it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you know, some of those scenes too are simultaneously so funny and so gruesome and also yeah. so telling about that character. Like the scene mm -hmm. you're just talking about where 
you know, he He's, puts on the raincoat and he puts on yeah. Huey Lewis and he moonwalks oh, across the place. And <laughs> you like Huey Lewis in the news? Like all of it is so ridiculous yeah, and memorable. Awesome. <laughs> and like I said, it's warped, but it's also really funny and memorable at the same time. But then also too, like the fact that the only reason he put on the raincoat is because he cared about getting blood on his suit. Yep. He gets blood sprayed all over his mm-hmm. face. He does not care. care less about mm-hmm. it. Just doesn't but want it on suit, his suit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because it's like, you know, he takes off the raincoat and suddenly he's just businessman again. Only he yep. has blood all over his face. Yep. The humor yeah, in this is great, dude. Like, this is one of those movies that really, it is a very dark comedy. If you watch this mm-hmm. looking for a horror movie and you've got him talking about the greatest gift of all and all that stuff. Like, oh, man. That, you'll be okay. like, this is a weird movie and the acting is strange and plasticky and, and odd. Right. But when you watch it as a dark comedy, it's fucking hilarious. Yeah. That scene. Okay. So the uh, this is another thing he does that is, I think, just a real subtle fuck you. He picks up a uh, street walking sex worker and then calls a high end sex worker. Right, yeah. Just as a way to show them, like, the, what's the difference? To me, yeah, it's all interchangeable diff- to me. Who cares? Yeah, you're the same to me. And that's why he makes the high end call girl lick the other girl's ass. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah, that is uh, all just power play kind of stuff. Yep, it's power play stuff. And speaking of power play stuff, let's talk about the P tape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Smooth transition. Yeah, so do you think. Donald Trump, while he was uh, directing those uh, two sex workers in Moscow at the Ritz-Carlton in the room where the Obamas stayed to pee on each other in the bed the Obamas slept in, do you think he was also talking about his favorite Fox News correspondents and like, <laughs> like just really getting passionate about Brett Hume or whatever? Like, I mean, it doesn't sound outlandish when you put it that way. Yeah. Now, you pee on her face <laughs> anyway, so I really love that Tommy Lauren. She's so pretty. You know, it does seem like those two scenes are kind of interchangeable. Yeah. <laughs> you put it that way. Yeah, I honestly, that's the first thing I thought about after, you know, seeing it now in, in that context. Uh, it was just like, oh, fuck. Like, <laughs> well, I mean, wow. we know. We, uh, gosh. Fucking Trump is disgusting. side note y'all are fucked if you vote for him (laughs) that's the thing too about this movie though is especially in terms of the humor and stuff like it had been so long since i watched this movie that i forgot how many of my everyday quotes and phrases that i use came from here i mean the the part you just talked about a second ago where he's like don't just look at it eat it eat it yeah like, that's something that Kate and I say to each other all the time when, like, we're feeding the dog or, like, making oh. food for each other. Like, that or, comes you know, up. in bed. <laughs> it's just it. like, Eat I it. say that line all the time, and I forget that that's where it came from. Same with, like, I've got to return some videotapes. I've got to return you some like, videotapes. You like Huey Lewis in the news? Yeah. If you hear the song Susudio, you're obligated to go, this uh-huh. is Susudio. This is Susudio. And <laughs> I just forget how many of my favorite quotes come from this flick. It is yeah. so quotable. Yeah, it's great, and it, it it's it's just so perfect for now. It it needs to be watched. I I this again, random drawing. Um, this keeps happening. We keep picking movies like 
thinking that'll be a fun one to talk about and then it ends up being entirely political a little too <laughs> relevant yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but that's crazy that so many horror movies are relevant right now <laughs> yeah no kidding because <laughs> we're living through one yeah <laughs> you know the thing with this movie too that i caught this time that i hadn't really noticed before um you know a couple months ago whenever we did our, our poltergeist episode we'd spent mm-hmm. a lot of time in that talking about how that family very much embodied 80s yeah, culture like everything family yeah yeah and, and everything's uniform all those houses are mm-hmm. the same and they have name brand everything and they yep. don't have pizza they have pizza hut like yep everything is this consumerist name brand kind of thing actually really felt a lot of connections between poltergeist in this movie yeah in that regard where everything is branded you know everything has a huh. a, yeah. a label attached to it it just kind of reminded yeah, me of poltergeist since we talked about that not too long ago i didn't think about that but yeah there's a big connection between the sort of messages of the two about consumerism i mean the way this movie starts with like the uh i guess it's probably like a raspberry puree or something but it looks like yeah, yeah. blood and those just like really elaborate plates it, it just starts out with consumption like mm-hmm. immediately like these are the uh, like elaborate things for you to consume these very elaborate plates and then of course we're going to be introduced to a guy who's sleeping on the street uh like it's just immediately we get the consumer uh like wealth inequality message and so much about his every product he uses and stuff he wears and all that stuff like he's just constantly talking about products yeah they're they're definitely connected in their message at the very least yeah definitely man and of course you know this is a noteworthy movie in that it has a scene with batman and the joker in it batman kills the joker batman doesn't kill it does have a scene batman kills the joker that's pretty crazy <laughs> uh i have a theory about this okay batman connection i i came up with and it actually made me change my thoughts on batman as a character okay all right um patrick bateman is bruce wayne and okay all right patrick- psychotic <laughs> billionaire wealthy guy okay yeah uh and Patrick Bateman's insistence that he's always wearing a mask uh, means that when he goes out at night to kill, he's Batman. <laughs> uh, and this is a riff on what Batman actually is. And I never thought about it like this, and now I hate the character Batman. But Batman... No! Batman is a rich man who controls the wealth of the entire city... And yet, he has allowed the city to become rampant with crime because of extreme wealth inequality. And he goes out at night to beat up the people who are suffering because he refuses to help the city with his money. (laughs) He spends money on tech to go beat up poor people. He is not only... I'm just going to go ahead and just wait... For when Kate gets to this part of the podcast and probably just like calls you and puts you on blast. But okay. <laughs> That's <laughs> what he does. It is what he does. He beats up poor people by night and he justifies it by creating the wealth inequality that keeps the crime high. So do you think there's ever conversations late at night when Alfred is like, Sir, 
perhaps we could improve this sector of the city by donating maybe a billion dollars? And Bruce no, is like, no, no, no. I'm just going to you know, beat the shit out of him. <laughs> you know what I need? Mean? A batarang that explodes with nerve gas. <laughs> and a tank. I mean, ba Batman is the ultimate uh, uh, militarized police with no uh, actual, like, answering to the law at any point. <laughs> which is what our police force is. I, I'm just saying, I think Batman is tone deaf now and needs to probably go away. <laughs> I'm just saying it, man. Hot take, I, man. <laughs> I, th I think Batman and the Punisher just need to go away for a while because, uh, no, you, you are <laughs> you are representations of actually everything that's wrong, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> unfortunately. You know, I'll tell you another thing that I caught this time around, like, Whenever I watch this movie the first couple of times and it gets to that part towards the end where you know things are kind of spiraling out of control and you're questioning his reality and questioning his sanity. Uh, for me, the real big moment that there was when he goes to the ATM and it says, feed me a stray cat. <laughs> yeah, like at, at that's that point a pretty good indication. Like, he's probably oh, crazy. <laughs> yeah, like he's out of his mind. But the thing that really stuck with me this time about it is how it didn't phase him whatsoever. No, yeah, he was just like, oh, okay. And also, too, if you get down to it, he just did anything that the money-making machine yeah, told exactly, him to yeah. do. I mean, That's as I irrational was... mm -hmm. or as cruel or as psychotic mm -hmm. as it would be to just grab a stray cat and stuff yep. it inside of an ATM, the thing is, is he will do it for money mm -hmm. without money even flinching. Money tells him what to do, yeah. Yeah, or questioning the morality, yep. questioning the reality of it or the consequences. Doesn't he matter. just sees, yeah, this is what the ATM wants me to do. Okay, I'll do it. Yep. 100%. I yeah, that's that's definitely what they're getting at with that is just the, the idea that no matter what, he will follow like no matter what these investment guys are going to follow the market, meaning yeah. they're going to create problems and <laughs> they're going to make things fail and they're going to prop things up with false appearances of success and they're going to do all they can constantly to make money for themselves, it does not matter what they have to do. They don't feel bad about it. They're going to do it no matter what. And afterwards, there will be no consequences. None whatsoever. Yep. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about the soundtrack in this? Other than the pop soundtrack, what do you think about the original score? Oh, I think it's fucking great, yeah, man. Really good. Yeah, There's yeah, really yeah, subtle really... things going on with it, too, that I noticed this time. Like, oh. Early in the movie, whenever he's like talking about his skincare routine, and then that uh -huh. transitions into him just being like, "But underneath it, I'm fucking nothing." Like it gets real nihilistic and dark out of nowhere. Yeah. Whoever put the score together behind that made it start getting subtly more dissonant behind it, right at the exact moment that he says that line. Huh. Like it's like the music sort of turns on a dime really subtly to where if you're not really paying attention you won't really notice or notice it you'll be like oh it's ominous now but it's gone from being this very tonal pleasant music as he's talking about his skincare routine uh-huh and then just subtly gets fucked up harmonically right when he says it it's one of those like really subtle but very well done things that i really appreciate in the original soundtrack that's this. awesome yeah, i didn't even really notice that cool. that's cool yeah, small stuff like that, man. You know, one thing I learned, too, about this, the, the character of Willem Dafoe and, and his detective role, oh, right. it seems so significant, but then at the end of the day, there, there are no consequences, so 
it's not really all that significant. And also, too, it's so hard to pin down what is going through his head. If he thinks that Patrick Ah. did it, if he thinks he's innocent. And I found out that part of that is because they apparently had Willem Dafoe do three takes of everything. Yeah, Yeah, they had him do a take where he knows that Patrick is the killer. They had him do a a take where he has no idea. And then they had him do a take where he was suspicious. And so, then they apparently just then they just co- used them interchangeably, them. yeah, yeah, <laughs> just to like make it confusing. Where you're like, I don't yeah. know what fucking page he's on. Yeah, yeah, I I like I that it. because you know it it really does feel from the beginning like, oh maybe he does know, and then like suddenly he'll turn on a dime and it's like, oh he doesn't know, and it's like wait maybe he's playing him, but then by the end it's just like, oh no he just doesn't know. Yeah, or maybe he did. Like I have Or maybe no he did and doesn't clue. care, yeah. I love his acting in this. I mean, obviously, he's always awesome. Yeah, Willem Dafoe's amazing. And it's so cool when you watch this flick because, like, when you think about the acting overall, you're thinking about Patrick Bateman. You're thinking about Christian mm-hmm. Bale and this yeah. weird, soulless, plastic character that he plays that yeah. sounds, sounds like an actor. I mean, he doesn't sound like a human being. He sounds right. like a pre-recorded... Role, uh, role of some guy reading cue cards or something like he sounds very very fake but then he's surrounded by all these characters that are very human and are right. giving you know uh, performances and stuff that are very relatable and normal yeah. and just makes him seem that much more alien and non-human because of it man it's really risky the way that he played the role of Patrick Bateman because the whole movie is with him constantly. I mean, there's like yeah. one scene, I think, the scene with Chloe Sevigny where she's looking through his his diaries there. Yeah, that's the only one that he's not in, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, it would have been very easy for that to turn into a really stupid portrayal or that to be a very distracting, annoying character, but God, man, well, I love the risk that they he took. He took inspiration from two things, and let me tell you, Ben, they're wild. Number one <laughs> was he saw an interview on David Letterman with Tom Cruise. Oh no! And <laughs> he he wanted to imitate that outward charm, but inwardly dead behind the eyes. Oh my god! Uh, and then the other was uh, Nick Cage's performance in Vampire's Kiss, which no is shit. one of his most insane performances so ever. So I haven't seen that movie, but actually the way that his character is so over the top and ridiculous yeah. screams Nicolas Cage. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the dancing stuff, all that, that is definitely him pulling some Nick Cage in for sure. Dude, especially I'm thinking of the whole like Paul Allen murder scene. Only yeah. Nick Nick Cage is in it instead. Yeah, Even him being a- like, "Hey, Paul!" and then yeah. ah, screaming and throwing the yeah. axe at him. It's like, yeah, Nick Cage could totally do that. Yep. Yeah, so you you can see it, and like you really can if you you look at some interviews with Tom Cruise, you can really see what he was going for. That just like, you know, there's there's nothing going on back there, nothing Damn. going on, just blank and oh <laughs> nice to meet you nice to meet you but blank yeah nothing yeah. behind the eyes yeah. damn dude it's a really fucking awesome movie it is I, it's i'm so glad that it stood the test of time and that it yeah. wasn't one of those ones where i watched it and i was like i get why i liked it back then but now it's kind of shot mm-hmm. um like i said I, I hate that this movie is relevant again like i, I really do. hate that I do this hate is that. 
so on the nose uh, as far as it, you know, like right now we're just living through the second wave of, of Reaganomics. Like this is Reagan, the yep. resurrection right now. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, this it, is suddenly all the more real and applicable. And, and especially too, it's like even worse now that everybody knows how bought and sold everybody that runs the world is. Everybody yep. knows how greedy and heartless all these captains of industry and politicians and people making the decisions that, again, affect the lives of actual people, life and death, everybody knows it now. So this movie yeah. is, like, probably actually scarier. Yeah. The most disappointing part is that everybody knows it and people still jump to defend a politician ever. Yeah, like, why? Right? Why do we ever jump to defend a politician? Any of I them. can defend an issue. I'm not defending a politician. No, 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 and and we're not just fucking picking on the red team. We hate them no, all. No, no, I fucking hate, hate the blue team as well. God yeah. damn, they've been <laughs> sucking shit. Oh, God, so bad, because uh. they're all like the scum that we see in this movie. Yep. All yep, interchangeable. Like, you put all a different colored tie on one, mm-hmm. and suddenly he's the other guy. Yep. Yeah, so, uh, man, yeah, this, this really hits home. I, I'm glad that we got to this now like and it's not in a time where this would just seem like an over-the-top ridiculous thing like yeah we we can say for sure like no 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 (laughs) we've lived through this it's it's real um i i do like that the movie basically ends with a conversation about whether or not ronald reagan has dementia or is a, a secret genius because oh, that yeah. is the same conversation being had about trump among the the gop and joe biden well yeah and joe well he's not a secret genius but <laughs> yeah i don't know if anybody's ever accused biden of being a genius no but. i don't think so <laughs> Whatever answer they would give to that question doesn't even matter anyway because they're just benefiting from it. So who gives a fuck? I mean, the Reaganomic stuff only benefited those pieces of shit you're watching at the end of the movie. Just like all the tax cuts now only benefit really fucking rich people. They will never care about you. Just stop pretending they will, guys. Yeah. So to them, it doesn't matter if he is a genius or in the you know in the throes of dementia as long as it benefits right. them it doesn't matter so who cares yeah they don't care yeah, yeah it does matter not one bit which is very sad and unfortunately still relevant might yeah. need to set a maximum age president i think that's a fucking beautiful idea because yeah. i don't know yeah. a single person whose brain started working better after the age of 70 Mm-mm. no it doesn't work that way parts that's are wearing out by that point y'all yeah uh, I think, honestly, there are a million other things I would say about this movie, but I think we've hit the most important element that this is extremely relevant today, that we're not uh, really even reaching for anything here. Brad Easton Ellis was definitely writing about Trump and his, his kind. Um, this movie, unfortunately, is extremely relevant 20 years later. Yeah. And it was about a period 13 years before that, and it it was still going on before that and before that and before that. We just keep repeating the same goddamn mistake. Um, uh, I like that the movie points that out and does it in a really, um, like, a really 
effective way, but also really well thought out way. Nothing in this movie seems to be um, flippant. Everything seems to be a choice. Every, like the way everything looks, what everyone's wearing, everything seems to be a strong choice. Yeah, this is one of those movies that I don't feel like there's any coincidences for really no. anything. Like here, here's another example of that. Now that you pointed that out, um, okay. I meant to mention this earlier when they're talking about okay. the business cards and stuff, right? Yeah. They're all obsessing over the tiniest details about yeah. what material and what color. It's like it's bone versus uh, uh, Nimbus yeah. or what the yeah. fuck ever. <laughs> yeah. Do you notice how there's a fucking typo on all of them? No. The word acquisitions is misspelled. <laughs> but they don't notice that. That's the thing is like they is don't notice that. Yeah, yeah. They're just obsessed with all the minutia of what it's made of, not what it actually says. Wow. And also, too, like he also gets a few dates of albums and stuff wrong as well. Huh. Yeah. So there's little stuff like that, too. So sorry. That, I meant to point that out earlier. Wow. That's interesting. I like that. I like yeah. that. I don't think that's I, a coincidence either. Like, I, I no, think that's deliberate. It's deliberate. Yeah. I would say it's about uh, creating reality. It's about just like, like whatever he says is truth. Like, it doesn't have to be. Uh, verifiable truth. He said it, and therefore it is true. Like, yeah, yeah, I yeah, it's interesting. I I did not think about that. Uh, um, but yeah, this is uh, extremely well acted. Christian Bale's amazing. Everybody's awesome in this. Uh, well directed. The writing is impeccable. It it moves at a great pace. Totally, the, totally the, passes the phone test, man. No phone yeah. touching in this movie at all. Even though I've I, seen it multiple times. It's interesting how that pace works where the first 40 minutes do feel like 40 minutes. The last hour feels like it flies by. Right. So, totally agree. Yeah, so it's it's a it's just a joy to watch but then every single time he is uh killing someone it is very hard to watch. Uh all of these things are just you're watching a sadist in action and it, it's hard it's like it's like watching henry portrait of a serial killer almost like but um it, it's great it's amazing for me this is like a a nine and a half probably nine nine and a half yeah i'm right yeah. there with you i have very little to complain about like do you have any any complaints about the movie uh oh they didn't introduce mila kunis's character for the no, sequel from, from american psycho 2 you're right right so that's definitely a complaint. <laughs> well, Never watch error. that sequel unless you want to see a terrible fucking movie. It sounds really bad. I don't know anything about it, but I watched yeah. a trailer for it last night, and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. It looks like somebody completely missed the point of this movie. Yep, absolutely. They were just trying to make money off the name because this was a surprise success. I mean, $7 million budget, uh, almost $35 million at the box office. So. Jeez, man. Yeah. That's um, crazy. I, yeah, I, I I don't have any real complaints, honestly. I yeah. I think it's rare that it's rare that a movie really does just nail every single aspect so perfectly. But it it's great. I I love it. I I wish maybe they could have gotten a uh a, a Trump like cameo like just not told him what the movie was and got <laughs> yeah. like a home alone style cameo <laughs> yeah yeah that would have really been funny it. if they got that but yeah no no complaints for me 
Right on. Yeah, I'm with you. There's very little to complain about here. There's there's like one little loose thread in the movie that mm. kind of dangled that they never really went back to. There's that scene where he's with, I can't remember what her name is, but it's one of the, I think it might be Lewis's chick that he's like fooling around with and stuff. Mm-hmm. She has these lines that are like seemingly significant and poignant where she's like, if uh, I don't see you before Easter. She's suicidal. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I didn't get that. That doesn't and, get, that doesn't get resolved. You're right. You know, and, and I asked Kate, about, I was like, that was kind of a weird beat. And Kate's like, oh, it's because she kills herself. And I was like, what? What are yeah. you talking about? And uh, she remembered that happening in the movie. But, of course, it doesn't. I guess it happens yeah. in the book. So that's like kind of a little dangle that didn't necessarily need to be there. I mean, that scene needed to be there to show that, like, they're all just fucking each other's um, ladies and stuff right. the entire time. Well, but... and also, I think it shows how... Uh, how incapable he is of reading people yeah she's right very clearly asking for help and yeah he's just, and he's just he's got nothing nothing yeah totally man so like that's about the only complaint that yeah that i, I have honestly that. that is that's a that's very valid complaint it's the rare movie that is kind of hinged on a twist that also isn't hinged on a twist because yeah. you can rewatch the fuck out of this movie and read it so many different ways yeah I like that. You know? I like that it, it just has that ambiguity to it that, um, yeah, you can get so much out of it watching it different ways. You can just say, like, oh, he doesn't even exist or whatever, or he didn't do the killings, or he did do the killings, or he only did some of the killings. Yeah, there's just so many ways to see it. You're right. Oh, yeah. And especially, too, just when you watch it thinking maybe the character of Patrick Bateman, we're watching a different one of these guys every time killing a prostitute fucking uh yeah. killing a bomb like maybe it's just all of them the entire movie you can maybe, watch it yeah, with that mindset that make and it makes sense yeah because he, he doesn't seem to have any sort of pattern at all in, in no. who he kills yeah yeah so you can watch this whole movie and be like it's not really about christian bale it's about the entire gang and they all yeah. assume this patrick bateman role because they're also yeah. interchangeable and characterless it's like they have sold any hint of individuality that they have for this dream of greed and wealth and being of that upper crust and fitting in with that scene, uh, they've become completely characterless and interchangeable. So it might as well be any of them the whole time. Who killed Paul Allen? Yeah. Who's Paul Allen? Was Paul Allen yeah. <laughs> even really Paul Allen? Or is he just somebody right. that one of these shitheads called Paul Allen? And he's like, yeah, I'm that guy today. Sure. Yeah. Who knows? It's possible. Yeah. I love it. I think it's a fucking awesome movie. And like you said, all the very deliberate choices make me appreciate it every time that I see this flick. And I will continue to watch this over and over and again in the future as well. I think I'm going to, I'm going to say a solid nine. I think I'm going to toss it a niner. I thought you were going to say six and I was like, wait, what? (laughs) I'm going to toss it a six. What? It's a six. (laughs) All the nice things I said about it. It's all right. Yeah. That being said, Deese. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Super, super cool flick. I hope that you guys enjoy it as well. I would like to know the opinions of people that hate the movie. So if you hate this movie, let us know know why over on the Facebook group or something like that. If you like this episode, be sure to rate and review on iTunes or fuck iTunes, Apple Podcasts. I'm 80 years old. iTunes. Uh, Apple Podcasts is where you can rate and review the show. Helps us show up in those search engines and stuff a whole bunch. So please go on there and do that. If you like the show, support us on Patreon. 
Yeah, patreon.com forward slash dead and lovely. Head over there. Yeah. Uh, go follow us on those social medias, the Instagram and Twitter, at deadlovelypod. We're uh, also on Discord. We've posted that link a million times. If you need it, let me know. I'll send it to you. We're easy to get a hold of. And oh, yeah. if you want to be a cool person, be like Uncle Ben and go support your local Black Lives Matter chapter. There's a protest happening a couple days from now in town. By the time this comes out, it will have already happened. But if you uh, are able to participate and let your voice be heard in your area to help this cause along, please do so. And uh, yeah. And wear a mask. And wear a mask. That's exactly what I'm going to be doing. That's for fucking sure. So next week on the show, Steve, we're going to be talking about one that people have asked us to do many times on the show. It Uh apparently is a love it or leave it movie. I honestly can't remember if I've watched it or not. I want to say it's one of those movies that I had on Netflix one night and was doing something else and didn't really pay attention to it. So it might as well be the first time. What are we watching? (laughs) Feels like the first time. Yeah. Watching the invitation. That's right. That invitation. Yeah. Karen I hope it's good. You like it, don't you? I do. I like it. I thought it was great. But yeah, I, I've uh, I've I've seen some polarized opinions, but a, a lot of people love it, and we had I, I think like at least four or five people had entered it for the Patreon drawing. So wow, we're 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 getting to it. Awesome, man. Well, I look forward to covering that one on the show next week. Well, you guys have been absolutely fantastic. We've been Uncle Ben, Hollywood Steve. We're dead and lovely, and you guys are the best. Be sure to wash your hands. And your ass. And tune in for the show next week. Bye. If you're one of those motherfuckers that's going around with your all lives matter horse shit all over the place, (laughs) whenever it gets around to the end of the year, if you're not saying motherfucking happy holidays, you are a piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Because all, all holidays, holidays matter, motherfucker. Matter. Duh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Because you, know you know that's going to be a thing. I mean, I am excited for July 4th for all countries matter to train. <laughs> I am excited for that.